You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians network. Find more great shows like this at wearelibertarians.com. All right, let's get back to some boring subjects. Understand the risk to our country. Freedom brings people together. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. My name is Chris Spangle. It's great of you to be with us tonight. We're excited about tonight's show. have a, a great guest. We, we rarely have people sit in on the, on the panel shows, but... T.K. Coleman, who is the Director of Entrepreneurial Education at uh, the Foundation for Economic Education and the co-founder of Praxis, that's a lot. We'll, we'll, ex- we'll explain what all of that is, but it's all a very big deal, and he's a very exciting person, somebody that I'm really excited to talk to, and I know that you will be excited to, to hear from. So with that said, we'll be right back right after this. Warning, this show is for adults, produced by semi-adults, so the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Uh, I don't Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it deserves. There has been lie after lie. We toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. Now, here's our host, a 15-year veteran of politics and media, Chris Spangle. Welcome back to the show. Again, my name is Chris Spangle. If you are new here, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I always forget this. Whenever we have a a special episode like tonight, I always forget to thank the patrons. So before I introduce anybody else, I'm I'm going to make sure that I thank our patrons. Uh, Obviously, the patrons are incredibly important. We've got some really cool projects that I'm working on, and uh, you'll hear more about that in the future. And everybody on our Patreon really supports us and uh, keeps the show going. And you can, uh, we're about to pass 4 million downloads in the history of We Are Libertarians. We did a million downloads in the past year. And that is only possible because of our patrons. And you can join at wearelibertarians.com. But I especially want to thank the $100 a month patrons. First and foremost is Reinhold, who I apologize. I forgot last episode, so I'm saying his name twice, Reinhold. Anthony Meyer, Brad Tracy, Craig DaCosta, Ed Brehob, Jason Doolittle, Jeff Bennett, Christy Avery, and Matthew Durbin. Thank you so much, everybody. I just wanted to do that right out of the gate. Uh, with me, as always, is Harry. Harry, how are you? Going good, going good. Um, got the green screen finally set up behind me. Yeah, I told you I had it. And yet you have absolutely nothing on the green screen. At least TK has like this beautiful bookshelf in the background. You could have faked it with the green screen. What's the point of having it up if you're not doing anything with it? Yeah, I was trying the green, to... screen, the green screen is really up the game. You got to have like a fake uh, beach behind you. Yeah, mm. right. <laughs> Sorry, I did not get that set up in time. I was busy doing other things. Uh, so it's, uh, it's been, a, you know, been a crazy two weeks for me, so. All right. Well, we're, we're glad you're here. We're glad that you could uh, be with us. And then always, Mr. Faithful, Reinhold, how are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, my green screen has been set up for a long time, and I still have not got the lighting to a point where it actually works well. So I just, we'll figured, with it. I just figured you were beaming in, you know, the, the libertarian basement vibe, that that's what your green screen was, so, you know, like yeah. in a hole. So, uh, well, we have uh, somebody special that uh, – you know, TK, I have seen your name a lot 
uh, floated around on various libertarian accounts. You're like the modern version of H.L. Mencken, where everybody kind of knows their name, and they see these really cool comments from you and these really concise, hard-hitting, perfectly worded tweets. And, you know, when you reach out to me, I'm like, oh, I really have always wanted to meet him and find out what he's about. And the more I looked into you, I was like, this is going to be a great show. Because your career, I think, is... um, exactly what a lot of libertarians should be doing. And what we're, go- what we're going to talk a little bit about this is, is, in this episode is I am probably the most guilty of this. Libertarians are great at the change, but not good at the hope. We know exactly what we're against. As the great meme maker David Cox recently posted uh, a Facebook comment from a young libertarian going, wait, I thought libertarianism was the hate of government. And sometimes it feels like we've gotten really, really good at hating the government and everything's about the government and what should the government do or not do. And we forget to articulate what the world would look like if we got our worldview enacted. And so I want to start with your background because I think you have presented a great model in a lot of ways. So like, let's start with where you're from. Like, what's your origin story? Tell us a little bit about where you started and and where you're from. Yeah, well, I am from Chicago, Illinois, and I am the son of a preacher man. My father's Mm. a pastor. And, um, you know, for me, there isn't a point in my life where, you know, I can recall not being immersed in a church community where everybody there was constantly thinking about issues like, what does it mean to live the good life? What does it mean to live a meaningful life? Um, what are our duties to society? And is it even appropriate to think about our relationship to society in a way that is duty bound? You know, so all of the philosophical questions of life, I grew up in a context where these were being wrestled with and and taken very seriously as literally a matter of life and death. But I'll tell you one thing I'm, I'm very proud of. One thing that means a lot to me is that my father never raised me to be a statist. There are many people who, when they talk about their political journey, they, they reference having a red pill experience. Well, that comes from the matrix, right? That comes from the fact that when someone was unplugged from this matrix of illusion, this system of, of enslavement, uh, and they were enlightened about the truth of the real world, they were given the opportunity to take the blue pill, where they kind of go back to their previous life, or the red pill, where they, they, they kind of see reality for how it really is. And they realize that, you know, this system that that pretends to be an ally or that pretends to be the real world is actually a system of coercion designed for their enslavement. Well, there's a character in the Matrix, many characters in the Matrix, who are known as children of Zion. And when, when, when you look at the back of their heads, they don't have that hook in the back of their heads because they were never plugged into the Matrix. And when it comes to politics, I consider myself a child of Zion. I never had to take the red pill because I have never at any point in my life been a statist. I don't have a conversion story. I've been a political atheist ever since I was a child. I define a political atheist as a non-believer in the salvific power of the political process, as a non-believer in the in the, the legitimacy of the right to rule. I've never believed that, never at any point in my life that I think that was a reasonable idea. And, you know, w- when my parents raised me on Bible stories, they taught me to look at the scriptures through that non-statist lens. So, for instance, if you take a look at the story of Moses 
if you've seen the Prince of Egypt or if you've actually read the Bible, the book of Exodus, um, you know, you know that Moses was the prophet and Pharaoh was the politician. And the politician was the guy that was responsible for instituting this system of slavery. <laughs> and the reason that he did it is because he looked at all of these people and he says, you know, these people are going to become powerful. They're going to realize what they're capable of. We better launch a preemptive strike and enslave these people. That's what the politician did. Right. And, and the prophet was the one who brought a message that said, let us do away with this system of coercion. Let my people go. That was one of the first lessons I learned as a child, that wherever freedom comes from, it doesn't come from politicians. Just like Pharaoh, politicians go with the tide when there's too much pressure in that direction. Politicians are a lagging indicator, as has often been said before me, of the change that occurs within the hearts and minds of everyday ordinary individuals like you and I. And when people say, I've had enough of this coercion, I'm not going to take it anymore. I will be treated with respect. I demand respect. Well, then politicians, they will dance to that tune, but only when they have to, just like Pharaoh. You know, he went down in flames trying to resist and resist people's freedom. So they only respect freedom when it's politically profitable for them to do so. But anyway, that's what I was taught. That was my upbringing. And so it's not that my family grew up talking about politics or a lot or, or complaining about the, the, the latest politician or political scandal. We grew up not even talking about that. Hmm. We grew up talking about things like what we were doing as individuals to make our communities better, what we were doing to spread the good news that human beings are creative expressions of the divine and have the power to impact their world regardless of who's in office. And so I've carried that with me. And, 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 I, and I have a heart like my dad's. You know, I consider myself an evangelist of the philosophy of freedom, you know, because I do believe that this message is a matter of life and death. I believe that everything hinges upon it, because if we don't have freedom, we don't have anything else. There's nothing that matters more. So that's where I come from. That's how I was brought up. And I'm going to pause there because I just went on a rant. <laughs> That's and, okay. And, 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 and I'm going to pause here and you direct me. You no, steer let me, me. Let me tell you, Reinhold and Harry are very patient. I think I talked for 28 minutes straight before Reinhold uh, was able to speak. It's, it's how it goes. Uh, you, once, you know how it is. Once you, once you get started, you just can't stop and you're like, ah, it's working tonight. Um, that's all great. And, that, and that's something that uh, I'm not surprised to find out that you have a Christian background or that you come out of a Christian community. Because one thing I continually run across in the liberty movement is that the people who who are anchored in faith of whatever type usually have more of a, of a an eye towards their community, an eye towards social interaction. That's something that we talk a lot about here is empathy. You know, how do we interact with each other? It. I don't want to live in a society where the New York Times doxes Tucker Carlson and, you know, Portland Antifa are abducted and aren't given due process. Like, it doesn't matter. It's, it's what happens, what do you say or what do you think about the person that is your enemy that is really where character is born out of? And we seem to be kind of losing that. And that's where I think libertarians can really step up and show, hey, the center, the, the middle – is most of this country and most people just want to go to work, raise their kids, be treated decently, be heard, you know, hear others, treat each other well and live in, live in peace and harmony and have peaceful cooperation. And so, 
you know, see how you get going and then it just doesn't stop, TK. You know how it is. And so how much does your faith influence your political? I mean, it sounds like it's pretty heavily influential in how you view social organization. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, first, um, I mean, if you think about it from a faith perspective, there's this idea, at least in the Christian worldview, that the ultimate expression of God's love was the endowment of free will. And even though, you know, God creates human beings out of a desire to, to have relationship with them, God gives human beings the freedom to reject them. And you see this theme played throughout the scriptures, this this like this astounding level of respect for an individual's fundamental ability to choose. So for instance, there's a story in the Bible where this rich man comes to Jesus, right? And he says, uh, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And uh, Jesus says, well, follow the commandments. You know the answer. And the guy says, well, this I have done since my youth. And Jesus says, well, there's one thing that you lack. I want you to sell all your possessions and give to the poor, then follow me. And the rich young ruler was was grieved by these words because he knew that was a demand that he was not willing to meet. You know, I can follow the commandments, but I'm not giving up this money. And the Bible says he was sad and he walked away. And then Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, it's harder for a camel to enter through the eye of the needle of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, what was interesting about that, you know, when people talk about that story, they, they talk about it as if it's some kind of universal condemnation of material wealth, which is not. The most interesting part of that story to me is what Jesus did not, did not do. He didn't run, up, run after the guy and, and, and put him in a headlock and say, look, I just told you that the right thing to do, that the morally superior thing to do is to sell your possessions and give it to the poor. So come up off that money right now. He didn't do that. He actually let the guy walk. He did with almost what almost no Christian does when, when an atheist or a non-believer says, I don't want to hear what you have to say. He, he let the guy walk. He said, I, I told you, I told you what you need to do. And you're going to walk away with that long look on your face saying that philosophy is not for me. He actually let the guy walk. He respected the guy's freedom so much that he was willing to let the guy choose to go do something that he just said is necessary to do to appropriate the kingdom of God. Wow. That's an astounding level of freedom. That takes an immense amount of self-restraint and character to not want to control someone, especially when you know what they should be doing. You know, if that isn't voluntarism, man, I don't know what is. I don't know what is, you know? And so, my, my faith has deeply informed me about the importance of choice, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, you know, people talk about love and they talk about that as if that is the heart of the Christian message, right? The Bible says that God is love. And, you know, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, love God with your whole heart, soul and mind, like love, 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 love. You know, there's even a verse that says, you know, faith, hope and love. And of these three, love is the greatest. You can give your body to be burned and make all these sacrifices, but if you don't have love, it's all in vain. You can speak with the tongues of angels and say impressive things, but if you don't have love, it's all in vain. And guess what? This thing that we call love, it can't be experienced unless you are free to hate. You cannot love me unless you're free to betray me, 
unless you're free to reject me, unless you're free to look me in the eye and say, I want nothing to do. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Find more great shows like this at wearelibertarians.com. All right, let's get back to some boring subjects. Understand the risk to our country. Freedom brings people together. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. My name is Chris Spangle. It's great of you to be with us tonight. We're excited about tonight's show. We have a, a great guest. We, we rarely have people sit in on the, on the panel shows, but T.K. Coleman, who is the Director of Entrepreneurial Education at uh, the Foundation for Economic Education and the co-founder of Praxis, that's a lot. We'll, we'll, ex- we'll explain what all of that is, but it's all a very big deal, and he's a very exciting person, somebody that I'm really excited to talk to, and I know that you will be excited to, to hear from. So with that said, we'll be right back right after this. Warning, this show is for adults, produced by semi-adults, so the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Uh, I don't know what I said. Uh- Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it deserves. There has been lie after lie. We toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. Now, here's our host, a 15-year veteran of politics and media, Chris Spangle. Welcome back to the show. Again, my name is Chris Spangle. If you are new here, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I always forget this. Whenever we have a a special episode like tonight, I always forget to thank the patrons. So before I introduce anybody else, I'm I'm going to make sure that I thank our patrons. Uh, Obviously, the patrons are incredibly important. We've got some really cool projects that I'm working on, and uh, you'll hear more about that in the future. And everybody on our Patreon really supports us and uh, keeps the show going. And you can, uh, we're about to pass 4 million downloads in the history of We Are Libertarians. We did a million downloads in the past year. And that is only possible because of our patrons. And you can join at wearelibertarians.com. But I especially want to thank the $100 a month patrons. First and foremost is Reinhold, who I apologize. I forgot last episode, so I'm saying his name twice, Reinhold. Anthony Meyer, Brad Tracy, Craig DaCosta, Ed Brehob, Jason Doolittle, Jeff Bennett, Christy Avery, and Matthew Durbin. Thank you so much, everybody. I just wanted to do that right out of the gate. Uh, with me, as always, is Harry. Harry, how are you? Going good, going good. Um, got the green screen finally set up behind me. Yeah, I told you I had it. And yet you have absolutely nothing on the green screen. At least TK has like this beautiful bookshelf in the background. You could have faked it with the green screen. What's the point of having it up if you're not doing anything with it? Yeah, I was trying the green to... Screen, the green screen is really up the game. You got to have like a fake uh, beach behind you. Yeah, right. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, I did not get that set up in time. I was busy doing other things, uh, so it's uh, it's been a, you know it's been a crazy two weeks for me. So all right, yeah, well so. we're we're glad you're here. We're glad that you could uh, be with us. And then always, Mister Faithful Reinhold, how are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, my green screen has been set up for a long time. And I still have not got the lighting to a point where it actually works well. So I just we'll figured. Have to be stuck with it. I just figured you were beaming in, you know, the the libertarian basement vibe. That that's what your green screen was. So, you're like in a hole. So, uh, well, we have uh, somebody special that, uh, you know, TK. I have seen your name a lot 
uh, floated around on various libertarian accounts. You're like the modern version of H.L. Mencken, where everybody kind of knows their name and they see these really cool comments from you and these really concise, hard-hitting, perfectly worded tweets. And, you know, when you reach out to me, I'm like, oh, I really have always wanted to meet him and find out what he's about. And the more I looked into you, I was like, this is going to be a great show. Because your career, I think, is um, exactly what a lot of libertarians should be doing. And what we're, go- what we're going to talk a little bit about this is, is, in this episode is I am probably the most guilty of this. Libertarians are great at the change, but not good at the hope. We know exactly what we're against. As the great meme maker David Cox recently posted uh, a Facebook comment from a young libertarian going, wait, I thought libertarianism was the hate of government. And sometimes it feels like we've gotten really, really good at hating the government and everything's about the government and what should the government do or not do. And we forget to articulate what the world would look like if we got our worldview enacted. And so I want to start with your background because I think you have presented a great model in a lot of ways. So like, Let's start with where you're from. Like, what's your origin story? Tell us a little bit about where you started and and where you're from. Yeah, well, I am from Chicago, Illinois, and I am the son of a preacher man. My father's Mm. a pastor. And, um, you know, for me, there isn't a point in my life where, you know, I can recall not being immersed in a church community where everybody there was constantly thinking about issues like, what does it mean to live the good life? What does it mean to live a meaningful life? Um, what are our duties to society? And is it even appropriate to think about our relationship to society in a way that is duty bound? You know, so all of the philosophical questions of life, I grew up in a context where these were being wrestled with and, and taken very seriously as literally a matter of life and death. But I'll tell you one thing I'm, I'm very proud of. One thing that means a lot to me is that my father never raised me to be a statist. There are many people who, when they talk about their political journey, they, they reference having a red pill experience. Well, that comes from the matrix, right? That comes from the fact that when someone was unplugged from this matrix of illusion, this system of, of enslavement, uh, and they were enlightened about the truth of the real world, they were given the opportunity to take the blue pill, where they kind of go back to their previous life, or the red pill, where they, they, they kind of see reality for how it really is. And they realize that, you know, this system that that pretends to be an ally or that pretends to be the real world is actually a system of coercion designed for their enslavement. Well, there's a character in the Matrix, many characters in the Matrix, who are known as children of Zion. And when, when, when you look at the back of their heads, they don't have that hook in the back of their heads because they were never plugged into the matrix. And when it comes to politics, I consider myself a child of Zion. I never had to take the red pill because I have never at any point in my life been a statist. I don't have a conversion story. I've been a political atheist ever since I was a child. (laughs) I define a political atheist as a non-believer in the salvific power of the political process, as a non-believer in the legitimacy of the right to rule. I've never believed that. Never at any point in my life that I think that was a reasonable idea. And, you know, when my parents raised me on Bible stories, they taught me to look at the scriptures through that non-statist lens. So, for instance, if you take a look at the story of Moses 
if you've seen the Prince of Egypt or if you've actually read the Bible in the book of Exodus, um, you know, you know that Moses was the prophet and Pharaoh was the politician. And the politician was the guy that was responsible for instituting this system of slavery. <laughs> and the reason that he did it is because he looked at all of these people and he says, you know, these people are going to become powerful. They're going to realize what they're capable of. We better launch a preemptive strike and enslave these people. That's what the politician did. Right. And, and the prophet was the one who brought a message that said, let us do away with this system of coercion. Let my people go. That was one of the first lessons I learned as a child, that wherever freedom comes from, it doesn't come from politicians. Just like Pharaoh, politicians go with the tide when there's too much pressure in that direction. Politicians are a lagging indicator, as has often been said before me, of the change that occurs within the hearts and minds of everyday ordinary individuals like you and I. And when people say, I've had enough of this coercion, I'm not going to take it anymore. I will be treated with respect. I demand respect. Well, then politicians, they will dance to that tune, but only when they have to, just like Pharaoh. You know, he went down in flames trying to resist and resist people's freedom. So they only respect freedom when it's politically profitable for them to do so. But anyway, that's what I was taught. That was my upbringing. And so it's not that my family grew up talking about politics a lot or, or complaining about the, the, the latest politician or political scandal. We grew up not even talking about that. Hmm. We grew up talking about things like what we were doing as individuals to make our communities better, what we were doing to spread the good news that human beings are creative expressions of the divine and have the power to impact their world regardless of who's in office. And so I've carried that with me and and, and, I, and I have a heart like my dad's, you know, I consider myself an evangelist of the philosophy of freedom, you know, because I do believe that this message is a matter of life and death. I believe that everything hinges upon it because if we don't have freedom, we don't have anything else. There's nothing that matters more. So that's where I come from. That's how I was brought up. And I'm going to pause there because I just went on a rant. <laughs> That's and, okay. And, 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 and I'm going to pause here and you direct me. You no, steer let me, me. Let me tell you, Reinhold and Harry are very patient. I think I talked for 28 minutes straight before Reinhold uh, was able to speak. It's, it's how it goes. Uh, you, once, you know how it is. Once you, once you get started, you just can't stop and you're like, ah, it's working tonight. Um, that's all great. And, and, and that's something that uh, I'm not surprised to find out that you have a Christian background or that you come out of a Christian community. Because one thing I continually run across in the liberty movement is that the people who, who are anchored in faith of whatever type usually have more of, a, of a, an eye towards their community, an eye towards social interaction. That's something that we talk a lot about here is empathy. You know, how do we interact with each other? It, I don't want to live in a society where the New York Times doxes Tucker Carlson and, you know, Portland Antifa are abducted and aren't given due process. Like, it doesn't matter. It's, it's what happens, what do you say or what do you think about the person that is your enemy that is really where character is born out of? And we seem to be kind of losing that. And that's where I think libertarians can really step up and show, hey, the center, the, the middle is most of this country and most people just want to go to work, raise their kids, be treated decently, be heard, you know, hear others, treat each other well and live in live in peace and harmony and have peaceful cooperation. And so, 
you know, see how you get going and then it just doesn't stop, TK. You know how it is. And so how much does your faith influence your political? I mean, it sounds like it's pretty heavily influential in how you view social organization. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, first, um, I mean, if you think about it from a faith perspective, there's this idea, at least in the Christian worldview, that the ultimate expression of God's love was the endowment of free will. And even though, you know, God creates human beings out of a desire to, to have relationship with them, God gives human beings the freedom to reject them. And you see this theme played throughout the scriptures, this this like this astounding level of respect for an individual's fundamental ability to choose. So for instance, there's a story in the Bible where this rich man comes to Jesus, right? And he says, uh, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And uh, Jesus says, well, follow the commandments. You know the answer. And the guy says, well, this I have done since my youth. And Jesus says, well, there's one thing that you lack. I want you to sell all your possessions and give to the poor, then follow me. And the rich young ruler was was grieved by these words because he knew that was a demand that he was not willing to meet. You know, I can follow the commandments, but I'm not giving up this money. And the Bible says he was sad and he walked away. And then Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, it's harder for a camel to enter through the eye of the needle of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, what was interesting about that, you know, when people talk about that story, they, they talk about it as if it's some kind of universal condemnation of material wealth, which is not. The most interesting part of that story to me is what Jesus did not, did not do. He didn't run, up, run after the guy and, and, and put him in a headlock and say, look, I just told you that the right thing to do, that the morally superior thing to do is to sell your possessions and give it to the poor. So come up off that money right now. He didn't do that. He actually let the guy walk. He did what almost what almost no Christian does when, when an atheist or a non-believer says, I don't want to hear what you have to say. He, he let the guy walk. He said, I, I told you, I told you what you need to do. And you're going to walk away with that long look on your face saying that philosophy is not for me. He actually let the guy walk. He respected the guy's freedom so much that he was willing to let the guy choose to go do something that he just said is necessary to do to appropriate the kingdom of God. Wow. That's an astounding level of freedom. That takes an immense amount of self-restraint and character to not want to control someone, especially when you know what they should be doing. You know, if that isn't voluntarism, man, I don't know what is. I don't know what is, you know? And so, my my faith has deeply informed me about the importance of choice, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, you know, people talk about love and they talk about that as if that is the heart of the Christian message. Right. The Bible says that God is love. And, you know, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with your whole heart, soul and mind, like love, 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 love. You know, there's even a verse that says, you know, faith, hope and love. And of these three, love is the greatest. You can give your body to be burned and make all these sacrifices, but if you don't have love, it's all in vain. You can speak with the tongues of angels and say impressive things, but if you don't have love, it's all in vain. And guess what? This thing that we call love, it can't be experienced unless you are free to hate. You cannot love me unless you're free to betray me, unless you're free to reject me, 
unless you're free to look me in the eye and say, I want nothing to do with you. Even if the one that I'm looking at and saying, I want nothing to do with you is the creator itself. You know, um, that, that, that's, that's far more tolerant than, than any of us are when it comes to our need to control others. And the ultimate sin, the root of all evil, the root of every sin in the Christian tradition is claiming to be like God, claiming to be like God in the sense that I have the right to be the authority. I have the right to rule over you. You know, C.S. Lewis says, you know, hey, look, I paraphrase because C.S. Lewis didn't say the words, hey, look, but he says, you know, it's it's not that I disagree with the notion that that some people are fit to be slaves. I just reject the idea that anyone's fit to be the master, you know, and the Christian message is none of you, none of us are worthy to be masters. None of us have any legitimate claim to the right to rule over another. And so authoritarianism, the need to dominate another, that is the fundamental source of evil. You know, when God created man and, and, and woman, when he created human beings, the first commandment was to be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion over the earth. As human beings, we're meant to dominate the earth, meaning that we are meant to make the world bigger and better through creative expression, but we're not meant to dominate each other. We're meant to dominate in the area of our gifting. And whenever we try to dominate each other by ruling over one another, it opens the door to Pandora's box. And so for me, if it's not voluntary, I don't want anything to do with it. If it's not based on freedom, I don't want anything to do with it. If you're coming up with some kind of solution and it's based on coercion rather than choice, I don't want anything to do with it. It's based on force, not freedom. It's not for me. It's, it's not of the kingdom of God. It's not of righteousness. You can't fool me by preaching a message of virtue that isn't rooted in freedom, that isn't rooted in choice, that isn't rooted in creativity. And I don't care what good thing you say is going to be brought about with it. You know, um, that to me um, is is how my faith informs me, informs my political view. Yeah. And <clears throat> I'm going to open this up to the to all three of you. You know, domination is a word that we keep, you know, really ever since I was talking to a Republican today and I'm like, I'm an independent person. And I've, I've always tried to be fair to Trump. And I wasn't anti-Trump in the way that I'm anti-Trump now until the Bible stunt with the church and you're gassing people to walk to the church. Like, it was such a crystal clear moment of domination. He even said the word domination the day before. You have to dominate these people. And it was such a naked moment of the government's power over all of us. And, you know, I still am mystified by libertarians who aren't watching what Trump is doing in Portland or with the protesters or some of the stuff and the language he uses. And they're they're okay with that form of domination because they're culturally right. They're culturally a part of what he represents. Or, you know, you can flip that and vice versa. I'm okay with this piece of domination because... I'm on their team. I'm, I'm part of that tribe. You know, it, it really comes down to a choice between the politics of domination and the politics of nonviolence. And libertarians, we represent nonviolent solutions and peaceful cooperation and exactly what you're talking about, a lack of coercion. What is it about us that even libertarians, even those of us, even Christians, even, you know, the everybody that you've kind of talked about and, and so eloquently summed up the beliefs of of both what is it about us that loves 
we have a guy on staff who's in the military and he talks a lot about command culture and who's at the top of a unit defines that unit. And he said, if you get a new guy, who's great at this level, every level below that becomes great. But if you get a guy who's horrible, every level below that, and there's a bit of that command culture in society where that top person informs how the rest of us operate because we are so oriented towards a leader. How do we start to break people out of that mindset? I mean, Reinhold, uh, Harry, jump in here too if if you'd like. But um, what is it about us that, that looks for that in a leader that we want to be dominated, I guess is the way to put it. Yeah. I, I think it's just more a case of just uh, feeling overwhelmed with, with all the choices and the, and the decisions and everything you have to make that it just be, sometimes it's just easier for someone else to make those decisions for you. And you can just let that, okay, I'll do You're right. I'll do what you want because that makes sense. And I, and I think that's part of it, but, um, a lot of it's still more of a conceit where people still think that they have the um, kind of the moral or intellectual authority to tell people how to how to make decisions in their lives, even though they don't know all of the things that that person's gone through. Um, you have to have a, a very high level of empathy that uh, I think some people just have problems with these days that uh, – understand that you don't know everything about the situation that that person making those ch- decisions are and what would your decisions be in those same situations you know um and a lot of people can't think that that they just think that no this this is wrong you should be doing it this way and therefore uh if you're not doing it that way then you're there's something wrong with you or there, you're not thinking it through right or you're, you're not making the best decisions so i need to help you out there uh, and it, so they think it's a coming from a place of helping that person when in reality, they're really just keeping that person locked up in chains, as, as TK said. I mean, it's um, what he said was so eloquent before. It's really hard to kind of follow up on. Um, but, <laughs> You're ruining but the show, TK. Say, I'm, <laughs> remember, I'm, I'm not a I'm uh, a Taoist. I'm agnostic as, as an atheist, as it yeah. were. So. You know, and I'm sitting here listening to TK talk, and I'm ready to go up and, you know, jump into the baptism pool again, right? Excellent. I mean, this it's the it's that level of fire and <laughs> conviction and care all combined together that I think the Libertarian Party, the Libertarian movement, needs to be to be uh, focusing on instead of these stupid little fights all the time. Not just that, but authenticity. Yes, Harry. Uh, a lot of it is also from just a big defense mechanism or just how humans just progress from. They are like to look towards a leader and work towards a movement. A lot of people are very scared or don't have the confidence to know their first step. And a lot of them are, they're so used to someone else that they believe to be in charge of them that they want a leader. They need that person to make a decision. A lot of the time that even when I've seen myself who are have leadership roles and jobs who are voluntarily, I'm, you know, I'm put in charge of people that I'll make a decision. And I see all these people behind me, they could just sit there second guess it. They have no plan of their own and I can make one. It could be completely wrong and just be horrible, but I made a plan and all of them are willing to go with it because they have no plan or they can't think of a better one. 
And so they're just willing to follow along. Even in the time when the person who is in charge, they can't reach that person. And everyone's like, well, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And you, you eventually just pipe up and go, we're just doing this. I don't know if we should do this. I don't care. This is what we're doing. You know, And it's that defense mechanism that's probably still built into if that lizard part of the human beings that have been built in us through millions of years of being on this earth that this is how we survive we follow someone's command and, and we stay we stick with the caves and we can kill these gigantic animals and we can freaking stay alive you know we can survive the night one more night and you know the people who probably did follow them, hey they, they died off like lemmings you know uh, and it's that thing that we have to fight against ourselves it's you know the idea that we need a leader i've Recently, was I, every time I have like political discussions, they, they always tell people like I'm just completely disgusted with Trump. It's like I don't really care. He's not my leader. I didn't vote for him. He's just some guy with a microphone, and you're the one who gives him power, not me. Yeah, you make a great point, and and TK has a great podcast called Revolution of One, which you can find at the Fee website and in our show notes. And uh, you know, you had on a guest, and I read his stuff all the time on Facebook, but I'm blanking on his name. Is it Sean Davis? You were talking about cancel culture. You work with him. He's the multimedia director for fee. Sean Malone. Yeah. Sean Malone. I'm so sorry, Sean. Um, completely butchered it, but you know, he made a point that I kind of have been thinking a lot lately is that everybody's terrified of cancel culture and everybody's terrified of Antifa or everybody's terrified of fascists. But like if you just act decently and you are a decent person, you're probably never going to get canceled. Like the reality is that politicians will try to make you afraid of an environment and play on those, on those primordial urges that Harry's talking about. And, and really it's just like, you look at, at the situation you go, you're going to be fine. Like there we're, we're overreacting a little bit. So I totally agree with you, Harry. Like I, 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 definitely agree tk what do you what what's your take on all this so i, I would say I'll, I'll just say it there's a systematic disinformation campaign that is designed to convince people that they are fundamentally powerless the education system in this country uh and that extends to something that goes beyond schooling perpetuates a message that power is is primarily an external phenomenon. It doesn't exist within you. It exists somewhere outside of you. And so if you look at most people, I know we're talking about leadership, but most people don't want to be the one who's front and center. Most people don't want to be the one making the tough decisions and bearing responsibility for the consequences when those decisions don't work. Most people don't want the game, the game winning shot at the last second. Most people don't want to be put in a position to be criticized. It's sort of like the uh, the saying that um, people's number one fear is is public speaking, and then death is like <laughs> after that. You know, um, the majority of people are afraid of leadership. It reminds me that there, there's a cool little NBA an- anecdote uh, antidote where um, Larry Brown, who once coached you know former MVP and now Hall of Famer Allen Iverson. Uh, Allen Iverson was known for shooting the ball a lot, and his teammates would complain that Iverson never passed the ball. And Larry Brown said, every time out, there would be someone who would come up to me and complain that Allen Iverson is just taking too many shots. He says, but the funny thing about that is at the end of every game, when everything was on the line and we needed one shot where if you hit it, you win and you get all the glory. But if you miss, everybody is angry at you. All of those players that would complain in those moments they would pass the ball to Iverson <laughs> and they would run in the opposite direction because they did not want 
the pressure and the responsibility that came with leadership. I would put most people in that category. So even if there are a lot of nefarious people out there who want to manipulate and control, that's always a minority. The majority of people are just the ones who kind of blindly follow along because they think they need to be led. So I always say the problem is not that there are greedy um, or, or dishonest politicians. The problem is that people make these politicians so relevant by not taking their own power seriously. You see, you can't have a hero unless you have a victim. You can't have a savior unless you have people who need to be saved. I don't care how much you go around being like, I'm here to save you. I'm the hero. If people feel like, yo, I'm happy with my life, I'm good. If, if I got something that I want, I know how to create it for myself and I probably do a better job than you. You won't have a job as a hero, right? So you need people to see themselves as powerless. You need people to see themselves as victims. And most people have been indoctrinated into a worldview that makes them feel like power is to be found everywhere outside of themselves. And if I can, if I can, uh, you know, rope faith back into it for a quick second, you know, Jesus was, was killed because of a message like, oh no, the kingdom of God is not in this temple or in this building. The kingdom of God is within you, you and you, the tax collector, the leper, the, the, the adulteress, the, the marginalized, the people that are despised. Yeah, that's the open secret, guys. The kingdom of God is within you. That's where the power to change everything comes from. But Jesus, we wanted you to come and establish a physical kingdom with, with a military. And we wanted you to be a great political leader and overthrow the Romans. And Jesus is like, yo, I'm trying to talk to you all about real power, a kind of power that doesn't depend on politicians, a kind of power that comes within. I know that you have been conditioned and deceived into thinking that's just a cheesy Oprah Winfrey message <laughs> so that you can laugh about it when people tell you that you have power so that you can mock them and dismiss them as a Tony Robbins wannabe. But who's laughing at you as you laugh at the idea of your own personal power? Think about that, right? And so the reason that we have this culture where everybody's looking for leaders to save them is because we have a culture where people have been educated to not take their own creative power seriously. And so people live with a permission-based mindset. And it is that mindset that makes politicians relevant. doesn't matter how charismatic they are. doesn't matter how dis dishonest they are. They would be irrelevant overnight if people took their own power seriously. And so the real first step to getting a freer society it isn't about saying, y'all need to vote this way. Y'all need to vote that way. As long as people do not take their own power seriously, they will give away their freedom for a donut on any given day of the week. If I could wave a magic wand and, and instantaneously manifest a voluntary society, freedom by its very nature will still be the sort of thing that a person can voluntarily get away. You, you can't call what I possess freedom if I, don't, if, if I don't have the ability to give it away in exchange for something. You know, if I can't choose my own enslavement, then how the heck am I really free? And so even if we had that freedom overnight in a world where people didn't take their power seriously, all we would need is what we have right now. Charming politicians coming along and saying, hey, aren't you afraid? You need me. Give me your freedom and I'll give you two donuts. And people say, OK, yeah, well, you know, I mean, if we don't give this man our freedom, you know, how will we have donuts? And that's what we have. We have a, a world that's a pretty perfect reflection of that fact. You know, people don't take their power seriously. Go ahead. You know, Harry. which is why, oh, you know, whether it's Socrates, I'm sorry, whether it's Socrates or Jesus, 
That's what we do. We kill the people who point people to the reality of their own power. And it's so funny to me that people mock self-help as this cheesy thing, but the people who get killed are always the people that point others back to their own power, which is why I say a true leader is not someone that says, follow me. A true leader is someone that points you back to the reality of your own ability to lead yourself. A true leader is someone that says, you may not know what you're doing, but neither do the people who are telling you what to do and who don't have to bear the cost of the choices that you make. You make your own choices. Oh, but people can't choose. People can't be expected to make the best decisions for themselves. And yet those same people can be expected to choose who the politicians will be. Come on. And I think we do ourselves a great disservice when we constantly talk. Oh, people are so stupid. And we all do it because people are stupid. But like the point, <laughs> the point is, is that they're that if you think people are stupid, it's because they have had those muscles atrophied. We can't talk about politics and we can't talk about religion because we don't talk about those things anymore. And so we don't have the ability to to converse about things like race in a healthy way. Like what, what I am continually running into as I talk to people in our audience, in the comments, on our Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it, it, there's almost like a, an inner, like an, an overlaying of the coronavirus pandemic fear on the nature of ideas. Like if I expose myself to a Marxist, I might catch it. If I expose myself to a white supremacist, I might catch it, you know, and there isn't fear is really the thing that you, you hit on. And that I find is just that that fear of I'm going to stay here and I'm going to promote the people that let me stay here in this protected little bubble. I'm going to live the same place in the same way that I've always lived. And I grew up that way. Like I I'm perfectly comfortable living in my own little bubble. But, you yeah. know, fear of ideas, of people, of words is just so profoundly strong right now. And it always is in an election year, but this is yeah. above and beyond. Go, go ahead, Reinhold. So, yeah, I was, was going to say that, too, that in that example that TK gave about the two donuts, it, that's not enough for full domination like that. It's not just I'm going to give you two donuts if you do what I say. It's that I'm going to keep those other people from taking your two donuts, yeah, right? Right. That I'm going to give you. I'll give you the two donuts, but I'm going to make sure that those people there who are coming to get you, that they don't get it from, they, they don't get the chance to take it from you. And that's really yeah. the power that they're employing. Yeah. People, and right. Those people might not even exist, right? There might not yeah. even be somebody who wants your donut, but as long as you buy the narrative, that's all that matters. That's exactly right. It, it matters what you believe that informs your behavior. And it doesn't matter that there aren't 8 million Antifa on the borders of every suburban town ready to take over the TJ Maxx. It's that people believe that is real. Harry, I apologize. I cut you off. What were you going to say? Oh, I'm just to say the same thing as Reinhold about the donut thing. It was that, you know, it's not the simple fact that, you know, that they're coming to take, someone's going to come to take your donuts, and they're also restricting the amount of donuts that you can have. Yeah. In reality, they're saying, here's two donuts, even though you're capable of making a dozen. Yeah. That's the end. So, TK, when it comes to fear and open dialogue and engaging in a community and, you know, my life, as I've talked about on the last few weeks, like, I'm not afraid of Black Lives Matter. I'm not afraid of the term. I'm not afraid of talking about police abolition. I don't know that I agree with a lot of what they talk about, but I'm, I'm willing to listen and I'm willing to have conversations and I'm not afraid of it. Um, 
but then there's also that other level that I've I've been you know I've been red pilled as you mentioned uh, in a throwback to the beginning of the show you know I was a conservative and now I'm I'm a, a libertarian. Um, when you're talking to other people about giving up that fear and letting go of that power, because that's really what a lot of this is. It's the conservative side, especially a lot of the anger. When we talk to our boomer parents, they don't want to let go. I got to hold on to this. I've already lost too much. I've, it's, I've got to grab onto this. And if I let them in the country, then I'm going to have to fight even harder. Like, uh, you know, that's hard to, to deal with that fear. How, when you're talking to people, what strategies do you kind of, you know, maybe not strategies, but just how do you deal with people's fear in a conversation when you're trying to talk about issues? Yeah, there, there's a lot I could say here. I mean, the, the first thing um, is I, I think there is a, a beauty and a pragmatism to empathy, you know, um, and empathy doesn't mean, you know, pretending to feel what you don't feel. It means, you know, looking beyond the words that are being exchanged in a conversation and paying attention to the context within which this conversation is taking place and, 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 and understanding how the dynamics of that context, context is shaping the conversation. It's like the economic observation, right, where people respond to incentives. That doesn't cease to be true in a conversation. So, so take a step back right now at the times that we're in. If I were a, uh, a social engineer, okay, if I were the puppet master, so to speak, and I wanted to put human beings in a situation where I could manipulate them to believe whatever I wanted, where I could, you know, cause them to live in fear and fight with each other, I couldn't think of a better setup than the one we have now, where everybody is locked away in their homes, they're isolated from one another. They're not having human contact, right? They're not talking with real human beings and people are just watching everything from their glowing rectangles. They're just feeding themselves traumatic imagery because, you know, every day on Twitter, someone is sharing, you know, whatever video supports whatever their narrative is. You can find whatever you want. You can find videos of black folks doing crazy violent stuff white folks doing crazy violent stuff. You can find videos of cops doing sketchy looking stuff. Like whatever narrative you want to support, there's more videos than you have time to watch showing you traumatic imagery of it all. And people are afraid, people are scared. And the conversations we're having are taking place in that context. People are worried about their money. They, they, they're, they're limited from human contact. They're, they have so much uncertainty about their futures. And then to be a human being is is to be constructive and productive. To be a human being is to be engaged in the process, in the creative process. Our creativity is what makes us human. And so people don't have their jobs, people aren't working, people don't, can't run their businesses. And we're trying to talk about some of the hardest topics to get right in that context. We should probably expect some difficulty. We should probably expect some emotion. We should probably expect some irrationality. We don't have to endorse it. We don't have to accept it. But we should probably expect that. And by coming into conversations expecting that, you know, we can avoid the, the kinds of distractions that emerge when we're just mind blown by the fact that people are being emotional and irrational. You know, it never benefits you to just have your mind blown all the time by, mm -hmm. by the irrational or sensational things that people say and feel. You know, so I, I think bringing a sense of empathy can help. The, the second thing is understanding that Listening doesn't constitute agreement. 
I can hear you out. Listen to everything that you say. Okay, I got what you're saying. All right, that makes sense. Hmm. Okay. That doesn't mean I concede any points, right? That's a good thing to keep in mind. It allows you to take a conversation so much further. Third, anything that you have as an objection to what people say, it can also be voiced as a question. You don't need to say, well, you're wrong because of such and such. You can say, <laughs> huh, that's interesting. So what would you say to somebody who objected this way? Huh, okay. What would you say about this possibility? Hmm, okay. I believe such and such. How do you reconcile what you're saying with this? Do, do you reject this? If so, why? You know, what's your take on that? And that process alone, which is a much more Socratic way, will usually make a person think about what they believe far more than you just sort of bum rushing them with attacks like, you're wrong, you're wrong. When you do that to people, they just kind of get defensive anyway and you don't change them. But when you actually ask them questions in a way where they're not threatened by you asking in a way that's genuine and cool, it makes them think about what they believe. And in case you're making the mistake right now that I'm preaching some weak political, politically correct philosophy of always be nice, no. <laughs> I'm saying always be self-interested enough, enough in your own conversations to try to get something constructive out of it. Because if you're not trying to get something constructive out of a conversation, why are you wasting your own time? You know, like if, if I'm talking to somebody, I want to get something out of it. I want to have influence with my ideas. I want to walk away from this conversation e either having learned something new so I can more effectively create the results that matter to me. Or I want to have exercise influence in a constructive way on your own thinking. If, if I'm in a conversation and I truly don't believe that's possible, I have evidence for believing that that's possible. I'm out. That's it. Why would I waste my own time? And, and that's a mistake a lot of people make. They they don't have conversations in a purpose oriented way. You know, for me, being reasonable doesn't just mean having arguments or evidence for your beliefs. Being reasonable also means having a good argument for why you should be in the conversation. Yeah. You know, um, you know, like I don't just talk about evidence when we're having a debate. I talk about evidence before I get into the debate. Is there evidence that this is actually a good use of my time? If it's not, I'll call my mom, see how she's doing. I'll work on my business. I'll work <laughs> on some writing. I'll work on something creative. I'll listen to some music. I'll go for a bike ride with my wife, you know? Um, having conversations with a purpose-oriented mindset will help too. Here's another thing I'll throw out there if we're talking about communication. Context. Context is king. Where you have a conversation is just as important as what you converse about. And right now we're all stuck in our homes and we're all having conversations over the internet. And sometimes as good as Twitter and Facebook and all these spaces can be, it's important to know when you're having the kind of conversation that's just best to have on the phone. That's just best to have when there's no audience. You know, it's funny because I have this little thing that I've done where sometimes, you know, I'll get into a debate with somebody online about something and we'll go back and forth and we're just missing each other, right? Like we'll go back and forth, like 10 rounds of comments deep. And I'll say to the other person like, Hey, you know what? Why don't we hop on zoom? And, and just talk it out there. Clearly, you care about the ideas. I care about the ideas. Why don't we just hop on Zoom? And most of the time, people will be like, oh, uh, never mind. I don't have time. <laughs> oh, okay. When I, took that, when I took away that audience from you, it was no longer interesting. When I took away your ability to slam dunk on me with an argument, it was no longer interesting, right? Um, when, I, when I raised the stakes by assigning a cost to having a conversation with me, like getting on Zoom and being a human being and looking at each other face to face. Oh, 
It wasn't interesting anymore. Okay, well, thanks. I'm glad I found that out. It saved me time. And sometimes when I've had people say yes to my offer, we get on Zoom and the conversation is so much more constructive, even if we don't agree. You know, it's just so much better. So don't assume that just because a conversation is important, that all times are equally effective for having that conversation. There is such a thing as a bad time and a bad context. And if you actually want your conversations to be constructive, try to pay attention to a, a, a time frame or a context that that is conducive to that. Those are a few tips I would throw out for having good combos. Yeah, I think the pearl, don't throw your pearls before swine principle, you know, going back to the, like there are just some times where it's like, this person doesn't want a conversation with you. Like I will have it. I will have a conversation with them because what I have learned over the years is that if I post something and it gets a reaction and I comment back to the commenter who's having a reaction and we go back and forth, I know I'm not going to change that person's mind. Sometimes you're surprised, but a lot of people watch those back and forths. And the second you make it negative, the second that you give in to wanting them to make it negative, you know, some people try to bait you. And if you don't take the bait, then then that helps. You know, people people kind of want to watch that that thought process take out. And sometimes it shapes some of your stuff. That's probably the most helpful tip is just like don't try to jump in, because the thing that I regret most is when I try to jump in or, you know, it's just like. Just uh, it's it wastes too much psychic energy. You're totally right about working on your business or spending time with your family. It's just these little serotonin machines are not good for us. Uh, any, you know, it's, go uh, ahead. It's, it's amazing how many people victimize themselves by subscribing to the false assumption that they owe it to other people to argue with those people whenever those people demand an argument. Right. And 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 the reality is, you have the right to decline any conversation you want for any reason you want. And you have the right to exit any conversation you want for whatever reason you want. That's freedom of association. That's voluntarism, right? Now, the person who wants to argue with you, they're never going to like that. Never, right? Because <laughs> because they're, they're emotional, they're passionate, and it's in their best interest for you to sit there and talk with them until they've got their feel. And that's understandable. They don't have to apologize for how they feel. But you only have so much time. You only have so much energy, right? At some point, you got to stop that conversation. And you've got other things that you need to be doing. You have things that you need to study. You have work that you need to do. You've got family and friends you need to be with. And if you really want to be a person of influence with your ideas, you also have other people who want to hear from you that might have different responses, right? So you have all of these other factors to consider. And, and people will try to make you feel as if the only way to be intellectually honest is to have a conversation with them right now. You know, so there are people out there who think, hey, I can talk to you however I want to talk to you. And if you want to be intellectually honest, if you want my respect as a credible whatever, whatever, <laughs> then you need to respond to every comment that I make. And it's like, nah, the world's too big for that. There are plenty of people that I can learn from. There are plenty of ways I can have stimulating, interesting debate sorry, but I don't need you. Yeah. That, you know, uh, sorry, I have the right to exit a conversation. And like, that's important for mental health, but it's also important for just like being constructive. It's also important for being rational, like apply the same standards of rationality to getting into the conversation that you do for supporting your beliefs once you're already in it. I typically will decline to have a conversation with an anonymous Twitter account. 
mm. if, if they're coming at me in a way that I can tell, like, this person's a nice person, like, they're just, you know, like, lo and behold, moving target and Reinhold are not their real names, you know, but yeah, on, yeah. on Twitter, I find that once you engage, they don't, the incentive of conversation is different. Like my name and reputation are out there for everybody to see and theirs isn't. And the, the reason is that they want to treat you any way they'd like to treat you without consequences. And so that's not a productive conversation. And, and they get mad when I say, thank you. I'm not going to have a conversation with you, which I do just to be annoying. And it does annoy them. Like I, I got swarmed by a bunch of different accounts, but, uh, I do that too, by the way. I, I, I often respond to people. It's it's part of the fun for me. Um, I, I usually demand some sort of evidence first. Like I don't just dismiss people as being, uh, you know, irrational or or unfair. I, I try to give charitable interpretation. If I see that the converse, if, if I get evidence from the way they're talking to me that they're just trying to get a slam dunk, yeah, you know what I mean? Then, then you know, I'll go ahead and cut it off because there's other things to do. That's the other yeah. thing that's bugging me about sort of my echo chamber, which is mostly libertarians, is the need to win a conversation. Mm. You lost. No, I didn't lose or win. You didn't ever even try to understand what I was saying to begin with. You manipulated it into you winning and me losing. And it's just like, that's not, that's not what I do. And that's, I am, I am the, uh, I just don't. I don't get that whole thing where we're we're all trying to win. Reinhold, you you constantly are losing in online conversations. Nobody loses these conversations. I get, I see more. Reinhold has a face. <laughs> TK Reinhold has a group named after him. What leftist thing will Reinhold say next? And then they just tag it on these Facebook channels. That it, it, it's so I feel bad for him because he's just losing. <laughs> Left and right, Reinhold. How do you deal with that? Oh, losing is just, you know, losing is just not winning yet. Right? You, <laughs> you, you don't want to achieve too early. You want, you want to build up to that. <laughs> I've, been, I've been doing that stuff for 30 years, right? So, I mean, I, I think that a lot of the times when I have conversations with people online and it gets heated like that or if I'm trying to go after, like, so, so I wrote for years at a place called Watchblog. Watchblog was... Um, the front page had had people on the left on the left side column and people on the right on the right column and people in the middle in the middle column. So everybody's posts were right there on the front page. You couldn't, you know, so we got a lot of crosstalk from the commenters from each of the different columns. Cause usually there would be some topic that was going on and it would be post on all three um, that kind of went against each other. So we were, I was constantly having conversations with people who weren't libertarians and that was to me the most fun because I was able to engage with them and figure out what they thought. And I think the important thing when you're having a conversation with somebody, especially if they're not another libertarian is do the work to find out what their actual thought process is. If you, yeah. if you come at them and say, Hey, you're just a status or you're just an authoritarian. Um, you're, a left libertar- you're a left libertarian, right? Hold that's all. That's all there I mean, is to it. You're leftist. <laughs> if you come after somebody one way or the other like that, you yeah. uh, you immediately put them on the defensive, and they're not going to listen to what you say, and you're not going to gain anything. But if you if you try to understand their positioning, you can say, okay, here's somebody on the left who really hates Republicans because Republicans are doing these things. They just want people to be 
uh, treated fairly. They just want society to work better. They want all these things. And you find out that they a lot of times have the same goals you do. And the same with the people on the right. The, a lot of the people on the right middle area or, are doing the same thing where they're just saying, I just want to be able to take care of my family. I just want to be able to make my own decisions without somebody telling me what to do. These people yeah. have these thoughts and it informs how they kind of see the things and you have the opportunity to make them see things another way, but you can't do that until you know why they're thinking that way or why they're seeing things that way. And that's when you can gain some traction in, yeah. in changing somebody's view is when you have, you have the understanding of what that view actually is to begin with. I, that's a real good point. I'll, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, Brian says, sounds like a bunch of cultural Marxism to me, Reinhold. No, the, the thing that I found is that, um, you know, when I made the effort, the very uncomfortable, the very difficult and not easy decision to, like, go have conversations about race with Miss Pat and Dion and, like, put myself out there and be put myself out there so that I could be called a racist if I said something ignorant. And they're like, you're not, ig you are ignorant. You're just not willfully ignorant. And that's the thing that we hate, like them individually. Um, you know, and that's what I found in, in talking to a bunch of different cultures, the truck driving, trailer living, Trump voting, you know, conservative that voted for Pat Buchanan, the Black Lives Matter protester, Reinhold, me, TK, like everybody just wants to be heard. And they want to be understood and they want to be respected. And like that doesn't seem to be a very tall order to me. It's it's just a matter of like having that conversation like you're saying, where you're feeling each other out, having that conversation, trying to understand. Like I just want you to hear my point of view. Like the person who is a Trump voter who, you know, they have a point of view. They're not evil people. They're not dumb people. There's very reasonable points, just like you said earlier. Their beliefs are real to them, you know? And so why wouldn't you want to understand their beliefs instead of just announcing that? But I cut you off, TK. What were you going to say? No, man. I mean, this, these are all good points, worthy, worthy of uh, being said. You know, so here, here's an analogy of something that, you know, I observed growing up in a church community, but I think it's I think it's true of like, belief systems and community of believers, whether it's politics, religion, or anything else. So in your average church, you usually have only about a handful of people, assume that it's a mid to large size church, you usually only have like about a handful of people who really know the first principles of that belief system. People that have studied up on theology, people that are capable of having conversations about Christian apologetics, People that can talk with an atheist will be like, well, do you really believe that a snake literally spoke and actually not get defensive about it and have an intelligent conversation about it, right? There, there, there's a small number of people that want that conversation and that can happen. The overwhelming majority of people in the church, they don't even read their Bible all that much. You know, they can't really like quote a bunch of scriptures. They, they'll probably get upset if an atheist bum rushes them like, well, why were there, you know, 1,233 people in the Simpsons according to the book of Isaiah? But then the book of Numbers says this, ah, those people like get upset and stuff like that. They're not ready for that conversation. And when you talk to those people, you find that the basis for their belief is something that's far more experiential it's far more personal. It's something that has nothing to do with all of those arguments you're studying upon and, and trying to debate them about. I say that because when it comes to politics, I think the mistake a lot of us make, 
we spend our time listening to podcasters, political commentators, politicians, people who make their living being in the relatively small space of those who study the ideas and talk about it all the time. And then we go from that to talking with ordinary people, everyday individuals, hardworking people who don't even like read books on this stuff. And, and we treat them like we're talking to the political commentator. And you, you have like, I lived in California, Los Angeles for 10 years. And there were so many people there who in their, in their liberal bubble, they just assume that if you voted for Trump, you're a racist. It, it seemed plain to them. But you know what? Many of them, they, they didn't actually know any people that voted for Trump. They, they never had coffee or went to the bar with somebody who voted for Trump and said, you know, tell me about your view. All they knew is what they saw from Trump himself, what they saw from political commentators who defend Trump. And then when they go talk to ordinary Trump voters, voters, it's like, oh, you must be a racist. And so I think just engaging, you don't even need a communication technique. Just actually go talk to real people, you know, like consider it intellectually irresponsible to make comments about people who say this or people who say that unless unless you actually know some people in that demographic. It's like, don't be the kid who lives in an all white suburb, doesn't know any black people and says, you know, I can't say what I want to say or black people are going to call me racist. I actually go meet a real black person. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Before you do that to yourself, right? Same thing with Trump voters or or BLM or, or feminists or, you know, MAGA cap wearing people. Doesn't matter. Just talk to real people, you know? Yeah. Her- Her- ideas from the people that actually believe it. I'll shut up after this. I promise. No, you're good. No, you're good. This is something that I, I had to learn as a Christian when I began to study other religions and worldviews. If I want to know about Buddhism, I'm not going to go talk to a Christian who used to be a Buddhist. <laughs> I'm not going to go talk to a Christian who wrote a, a Christian book about Buddhism and why it's demonic. I'm going to go talk to an actual Buddhist. I want to talk with somebody that practices it right now. I'm not going to talk to the bitter guy who grew up in a bit Buddhist home and deviated from the faith because he hates it. Nope. Only person I want to talk to are people that actually practice that form of spirituality and they believe it's changing their lives. I want to learn about it from them. Same thing if I want to study Islam. I, I, I want to hear about it from the practicing Muslim. If I want to understand what it's like to be a Republican, I want to talk to somebody that truly is Republican. I, I don't want to hear the Democrat make a video, you know, or, or even something like, you know, I saw Ben Shapiro. He's got a book review of white fragility. This is not how I do research. I don't want to I don't want to limit my understanding to like Ben Shapiro telling me about white fragility. You know what? I'm going to go read the book. And if I disagree with it, I'm going to disagree with it because I read it myself. If I make fun of it, I'm going to earn the right to make fun of it because I read it myself. I don't ever want to live or think through a political commentator, even if I respect them. And I think having that kind of mindset will take you so much further in your interactions with people. Well, I mean, now that he's dis- dissed podcasters, we have to say goodbye to TK. I mean, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I, we, that's what we do here is is really try to do the hard work because I'll be honest with you. What I what I did the first like five, six years of the show was I had very smart co-host and I coasted and I kind of just, you know, we have this joke in, in our in our chat or our writer's room, as we call it, you know. I know there's this fact that I know I heard on a podcast somewhere, but I can't tell you it's true. 
You know, and I think that's that's everybody has that. You know, you kind of heard this thing in conversation. You read it on Facebook, and it seems true, but you don't really know. It's like you you know when you're talking about white fragility and giving Ben Shapiro's take on it that that probably may be true, but you also really don't kind of know. You know, and, and that's how I did a lot of this show early on, and then you know, since 2017. I realize the responsibility and the, the just the trust that people have in what we do here. So our show notes have gotten like 17 pages long and like we're going to put the work into it and have, you know, conversations because I realize like I have the, the ability like Harry, when Harry said to me, you don't get it. My experience is way different than yours in life, mm. but especially with police officers it just never occurred to me, never occurred to me that Harry has a whole different set of circumstances that are solely based on the color of his skin. Mm. And instead of going, man, that sucks for that guy, but I'm going to continue to tell you what this white man who's straight and a Christian and, and like, you know, no, I want to know more. Tell me more. What does everybody have? Like, I, you know, I just found out that like well, people will walk up and pat a black person on the head. And like, what? Like, you know, and then my friend explained the whole stereotype and all of the things that go into that and how often that happens. And you're just like, so when I, when people bitch about microaggressions, that's what they're talking about. So the people who are not going to walk up and disrespect someone in such a profound way probably aren't going to get canceled for microaggressions, you know, but because we've heard that, that thing over and over on podcasts, and this is going to happen to you, we get terrified of having a conversation about race with our black friend, because I just don't want them to think I'm racist because the racist being, because most people are ignorant. They're not racist. Like I don't, I don't like, I'm still shocked to find out how much racism there is in, in, in people. But like, I tend to think the good of people and I tend to think that most people want to be respectful, want to be responsible. I don't buy that if the government didn't exist, people wouldn't stay in their house or they wouldn't wear masks or they wouldn't do this. You know, it's people tend to try to do the right thing. Uh, You know, we had a great episode with a a comedian. um, I think it was like 116 episode 116. And he was uh, telling the story about how he and a group of people were running towards a car accident. This guy had driven off a cliff. And as he's walking back, he's looking, he's like, okay, they're Asian, they're black. This is a Jewish guy. Like, not one of us thought what race, color, creed, religion, political persuasion is in that car. That's a human being that needs help. And that's generally how I think most of us think. It's that we... Once we stop and think about it and lose our empathy, then we start to let some of that go. You know, so I I genuinely think that if we we trust each other a little bit more and and lose some of that fear, we're going to start getting better results as a society. Uh, And, and, you know, I want to transition because we can't end the show without talking about praxis. One of the one of the main drivers, you you got to leave me on the uh... Yeah, you go ahead. You if you, like that, you if, said so much interesting stuff. Yeah, about go ahead. Go ahead. Say like it. I, I apologize. Well, how much time do we have? Are, yeah. are we like at the like five minutes? We're done. No, 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 no. We trust me. We do like nine hour podcasts. So buckle up, buddy. <laughs> no, I just want to be respectful of your time. But no, we have no time limit here whatsoever. Go ahead. Well, I, I wanted to say a couple of things. One about the the listening side, and you know, like microaggressions, and then the other about the race side. On the listening side, I want to say this. 
a lot of times we we fail to make the distinction between um, what I call debating an idea versus debating an implication. You know, an idea refers to the content of what a person says. An, Im an implication refers to what we think it would mean were we to acknowledge what they said is true. So if someone says something like, you know, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a black person. I, I believe in racism. You know, uh, someone might say, oh, you're, you're just blaming white people for all your problems. So so that's a, that's an example of debating the implication rather than the idea. Here's a person who said, you know, I believe that racism is a problem. And the perceived implication of that is, and you are also a socialist who believes that all white people owe you an apology or something like that. Well, we don't know if that's true. Those two things can be separated. You can believe that racism exists and be a capitalist, or you can be a socialist. We, we, don't, we don't know what the political economic philosophy is. And, and what happens is a lot of people are so afraid of what they think it would mean if they were to acknowledge your point is true, that they never give themselves the permission to make common sense observations about life. People don't respond to what you actually say. They respond to the political party they think you're representing when you say it. And so instead of asking, is that true or is that false? Is that useful? Is that useless? They ask, is that the liberal position or the conservative position? Is that guy on our side or is he on somebody else's side? And people don't know if they can acknowledge what you say is true until they figure out how they think you're trying to use that truth for the sake of a political agenda. And something that could improve conversation so much is to just separate those things. Let me hear you talk about your, your belief. Let me hear you talk about your experience. And then I can ask you questions about what the implication of that seems to be. You know, I, I actually had someone ask me one time, uh, this was a white friend who asked me if I thought that some problems in the black community today are the result of, you know, things that happened during the times of slavery, right? And without knowing that this person would make so many arrogant assumptions about other parts of my worldview based on that answer alone, I said, yeah, I think so. You know, I think so. And they immediately got defensive and said, well, I, I, I think you're making other people responsible, you know, for your life just because you're not getting, you know, the results that you want. And I'm not responsible for your problems. And I said, whoa, 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 hold up, hold up, because I know you complain to me when you have problems. Well, have I ever complained to you? Have I ever come to you? talking about how unhappy I am. Have I ever even slightly indicated to you that I'm not in the middle, always in the middle of creating the results I want out of life? So don't bring that victim stuff to me. Don't do that to me. You ask me a yes or no question and I say yes. If you want to know my philosophical arguments for it, I'm happy to give it to you. But why assume that I'm some angry person who's trying to find an excuse for why I'm so unhappy or why assume that I think you need to give me $5? Why assume <laughs> I think you need to bow down and apologize to me? I don't have any of that baggage going on. I, I just thought there was a cause and effect relationship between two things. Would you like to know my actual philosophy about what the best way to respond to it is? Because you might actually like it, especially if you call yourself a capitalist, right? But, but we don't get to have those kinds of conversations because- we're so busy responding to the perceived implication. And, and I think conversations can go much further if we can make that distinction. The thing about race. It's interesting that you talked about um, most people, you know, most people have good intentions. I think 
one of the greatest disservices to the conversation on race in America is that we have made it all about consciously held intentions rather than outcomes. And, um, and all that is valuable in the discussion has been lost at, at, at the level of that mistake. You know, Thomas Sowell says that you, you must judge a policy, not by the intentions, but by, but by the outcomes. And so, you know, if your intentions are benevolent and you claim to love black people, that doesn't matter to me one bit. What, what, what's the outcome of what you're actually doing? And if your intentions are nefarious and you hate black people, I don't care about that either because the mere hatred of me doesn't mean you have any power to oppress me, to violate my individual rights. I want to know about the outcome, right? And I, I think what has happened is we, we have subscribed to this cartoonish concept of racism. And what's interesting is when you look at racism throughout history, I, I actually don't know if I can find a single example of a racist that thought of themselves as being racist. <laughs> No, no, hang with me here. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, what you will see is you will see some people who are so like sick and tired of being called racist, and they're tired of defending themselves. They they will defensively kind of like give in out of frustration and be like, "Yeah, okay, fine, I'm racist, fine." You'll see that, but I've never seen a person in history that was actually racist who thought of themselves as racist. So find for me your example of a racist person, whether it's KKK or white nationalists, whatever, and actually go listen to that person. And what they say, I'm not saying I'm not denying existence of racism. So so hang with me. But I'm saying if you look at what a racist does and says from the vantage point of their own internal logic, it often sounds like this. Man, I'm just looking out for my family. I'm just looking out for my family. I'm just trying to make sure that our rights are protected. I'm just trying to make sure my daughter's okay, that my son is okay. I'm just trying to make sure my wife is okay. I'm just trying to, you know, they, they, you know, I'm just trying to make sure we good. You know, e- even in times of slavery where we have this romanticized, completely erroneous view of American history, that there was a point in the past where America agreed on like the quality of life for black folks. And that everybody agreed during that time that racism was this big problem and that black people had this low quality of life. The main arguments for keeping black folks as slaves made by the whites at that time were arguments that were couched in the rhetoric of compassion. The, 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 the main arguments were not these black folks are, are beasts and they're evil and they don't deserve freedom. No, the main arguments were compassionate arguments like but they can't read like, like life is better for them on the on the plantation. You know, e- even many of the slave masters thought of themselves as being loving and nice in the same way that a human thinks of themselves towards their dog, right? Like, you know, if you own a dog, you don't see that dog as your equal, but you love that dog more than your neighbor, right? That's how these slave masters saw black folks. They didn't see themselves as being racist. And so if you want to fight racism, you are never going to succeed at the level of trying to convince people that are racist that they need to see how they are being racist in the same way that, for instance, if you want to stop someone from manipulating you, you're not going to get there by trying to convince the manipulator that they're being a manipulator because people who are manipulative don't see themselves as being manipulative. They just see themselves as doing what they got to do to survive. And it works for them, right? The way that you stop it is you take responsibility for creating boundaries that make it impossible for them to violate your individual rights. Same thing with racism. It's I don't care how you feel deep inside your soul. 
I care about what you actually do. And if what you're actually doing is a violation of my individual rights, let's talk about that. And I'm not going to give you an excuse to wiggle out of the conversation by reminding me that you have an American Express black car and a black dog, and therefore you can't be racist. I don't care. I don't, I don't even <laughs> care about that. I don't care if there's some gooey substance inside your soul called being a racist. I don't care about your ontological state. I care about the actual behavior. If it's a violation of my individual rights, let's put a stop to it. If it's not, then you're just a powerless hater who's irrelevant to any, to me anyway. Go ahead and keep thinking evil thoughts inside the safety of your own head. You're powerless. Yeah. Uh, Reinhold Harry, do you want to jump in here? Any thoughts? Yeah, I can fall ahead a little of that. Um, I, with TK saying, like, with meeting a racist, I think face-to-face, -face, Frank Cabrone met two. Okay. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, just two, two, my entire life. One, I, both of them I considered friends for the longest times, and it just kind of came out of them. Um, uh, just conversations, um, you know, a lot of them admitting it themselves later on and, and just having this different worldview. It's, uh, it is shocking. Uh, a lot, of, and there's a lot of different times you do give them like, the benefit of doubt when different things happen, but things start adding up, you know. And eventually, for some reason, each time these at least you got these two individuals. Uh, one person I did a podcast to, uh, actually both of them I did podcasts with. Uh, you know, one I met through Wall, and the other one I, you know, I freaking you know, like I met in school, you know, hung out with. Uh, it is weird. Uh, when it comes out, because just like you, TK, it's like, yeah, you just don't meet them, and no people really do think they're racist, even though they do have racist actions and, ra and what you perceive as racist thoughts, just because of you're right, it's that idea of compassion. I'm doing this and the same thing uh, uh, to help them, you know? If they, if the, the since the blacks do not read their own property, if we were let them off the plantation, they'd have nowhere else to go and they would probably die on the street. It'd be terrible. Where would we take them back? And it's so expensive to send them back to Africa as well. So they might as well just stay on the plantation. At least I can have give them some type of life. Those, you know, those were a lot of the different arguments. Um, the other thing is with it, it's the lot of different things that I see as racist here, like a lot of the left-wing talking points, the liberal apartheid of all the things of where they want these different programs and do different things for, for the underprivileged or the uh, the others, and it's out of compassion because if we don't educate them with our school system and give them our food and do all these things, well, they'll starve because... I don't know why they, you know, this is just so hard for those people to have internet access and have IDs and, you know, and feed their kids and have this single household. It's, yeah. it's, they do not see themselves as racist. And this is a racist thought of what they're doing, but it is if you expand upon it, like, do you not see what you are doing? Meaning the white savior, the white liberal, specifically, mm -hmm. I mean, Malcolm X yeah. had a whole speech yes. about white liberals and, and their, their racism. <laughs> Yes, yes. And it still permeates today, like especially in Antifa, you know, it's like, wow, if the conspiracy theory that Antifa is just like the children of old KKK members, considering like Oregon is full of old KKK people, that they, a lot of them aborted the South when the Republicans uh, abolitionists started taking over the South and went to the Pacific Northwest. 
you know, that's the flip that everyone kept, that really popular kept talking about. That's the real flip that freaking happened. Yep, look it up. I'm not lying. Look it up. Look it up. Please get into your whatever internet search machine and watch the move. Watch the move happen. <laughs> I, I got to check it out. Well, well you know, um, can, can I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. No, no. And, and, and you're not like I'm a radio guy. So like I hear and I freak out. So like I'm like, I better start talking. So you, you've been great. We, we're having a, a great conversation. So feel free. Go ahead. All right. Yeah, yeah well, well, you have say, already obliterated what I do on Friday nights. Talk about how I'm not supposed to go and punch down at people at my local bar, you know, for political <laughs> talk. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, so th- there's uh, there's an August Wilson play. August Wilson, a great African-American playwright, has been made into a movie starring, starring Viola Davis and Denzel Washington. It's called Fences. And uh, there's a scene where, uh, you know, the son, his, his father is very like a very stern, harsh man. And the son is just kind of, he just wants a hug from his dad, man. Pops is always preaching at him, always giving him a hard time, trying to make a man out of him. And and the boy, you know, comes up to his father and he says, dad, do you like me? And the father says, like you? He says, let me ask you something, son. And I paraphrase. He says, when you wake up every morning, do you have clothes to wear to school? The son said, yes. When you come downstairs and you sit at this table, do you have a hot meal ready to eat? The son says, yes. When you come back home and you get ready to go to sleep, do you have a bed that you can lay in? Son said, yes. Do you feel safe being at home knowing that nobody's going to come in this house and do anything to you? The son says, yes. Father says, why do you think that is? The son thinks about the point that his father's making and he says, he guesses the answer, because you like me? And the father laughs to himself, says, it's not because I like you, it's because I'm a man. And as a man, when I say I'm going to do something, I do what I say. I handle my responsibilities. And because you're my son, I honor my commitment to do right by you. And that's what you better worry about in this world. Instead of running around worrying about who likes you and who doesn't like you, the question you ought to ask yourself is who's doing right by you? Because there are a lot of people out there that don't like you, but they'll do right by you. And there are a lot of people out there who like you and say all the right things and they won't do right by you. For me as a volunteer is doing right by me is respecting my individual rights, point blank, period. It doesn't mean that if you don't want to date me, you have to date me. doesn't mean that if you don't want to be my friend, you got to be my friend. doesn't mean you smile at me when I smile at you. That's all nice, but you don't owe me any of that. You don't owe, owe it to, to hang out with me, but it means honoring my individual rights. And by making everything about who likes who, because, because I, I see the left and the right, especially at a time like this, they're kind of, they're kind of involved in this shouting match with, with shouting match with each other where it's like you're the real bigot no you're the real bigot you're the real racist you're the one that's really racist you know and, and they're having that conversation with themselves you know and black people are kind of like a um you know like a a, a a a plot device you know that that's that's useful for that conversation to different groups in different ways but it's like it doesn't matter who likes who and who doesn't And by making everything about intentions rather than outcomes, we've created this market where one group gets to feel really good about themselves for being anti-racist and rhetoric while endorsing policies that actually have negative externalities that are crushing black people. Right. And and then, you know, another group, even if there is real in even if there are real instances of people being oppressed systemically 
through the power of this monopoly on violence that is the state, they don't acknowledge it because they don't have any racist intentions. They don't fight against it because they don't have any racist intentions. You know, I, I, I use the phrase system of oppression. And I actually had a conservative tell me, you sound like a liberal. I said, I'm sorry. Can you think of any better phrase for the monopoly of violence that is the state than system of oppression? Because that is what this is. It's a system of oppression. You know, um, and so you've got some people who, because they don't have any racist intentions, they they can't see any instances of of this violent mechanism coming down on people and violating their individual rights. And then other people can see it and, and they act like it's enough to say the right things and while endorsing th- endorsing policies and practices that hurt the people they claim to help even more. It's like that movie Get Out. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert, just fast forward two minutes if you haven't seen the movie yet. But but there's a moment where you know you have a, a black guy who's dating a white woman and they're and they're traveling home, driving home to see her parents. And you know, there's a there's a white cop who pulls them over and the way the cop treats them the way he treats the white woman versus the black male, it, it's clear that the cop is kind of like the racist character in the movie. It's clear that he's the guy that's that's racist. But it turns out that the cop doesn't do them any harm, right? He's kind of a jerk, but he doesn't do them any harm. The guy, the guy goes home, he meets the girl's family, and her family, they're all, you know, like they're all just like super pro-black. They got respect for black people. The father's like, if I could. I'd vote for Obama a third time. And they just love black folks, right? And the the funny thing is um the, the the funny thing is that in the end, again, spoiler alert, the people that are the most dangerous are the ones that claim to be pro-black. It's the people that love black people. You know, so you got to be careful with those intentions and and you got to you got to make this conversation about, you know, um what's happening in our world about outcomes, because that keep, you know, if you make it about intentions, it lets everybody off the hook. But if you make it about outcomes, it holds everybody accountable to the principles of freedom that we care so much about. And there's a way to do that without pretending like these harsh realities aren't real. So, so what you're saying is it's what I'm hearing you say is that you don't think that we accomplished anything by uh, getting Aunt Jemima off of the syrup bottle and the uh, and we and we put the the we painted the streets. I mean, that's not good enough. <laughs> well, well, actually, funny enough, funny enough, I I think that's kind of an interesting topic in a different way. Yeah. So, contrary to what many of my fellow capitalists seem to believe. I actually believe that capitalism is nothing more than a giant profit-based virtue signaling system. In other words, when you go to a bar or a restaurant, I don't believe that your bartender or barista is serving you and treating you so nicely because they actually like you. I I think what they are giving you is economically incentivized respect. Love is what you get from your mom. Love is what you get from your dad. Hopefully, if you got good parents who care about love is what you get from your spouse or your friends. Economically incentivized respect is what you get from the market. Market doesn't give you love. And the, the key, however, is that virtue signaling is like acting. 
You know, um, a good actor is someone that makes you forget that they're acting. A good actor is someone who can play a villain and they have you really angry at them because you forgot that this is actually just Leonardo DiCaprio you're watching. He, he doesn't really want to kill anybody. It's just an actor playing a role. A good actor makes you forget all of that and makes you think you're really watching a mean villain, you know? Um, but if you can tell that someone's acting, you don't enjoy the movie anymore, you don't believe it, you don't buy in. In a similar way, businesses are constantly in competition with one another to signal to their customers, we care about you, we care about you. Businesses are always doing that. There is no time where a business is not doing that. All of a business's decisions are oriented around signaling to their customers, we care about you in a way that their customers will actually buy. And if it comes off as disingenuous, it won't work and the customers will call call their bluff. So you got to do it really well. And that's exceptionally difficult to do. Anybody that's tried to run a business, tried to start a business understands that. So what I'm seeing right now, as much as everybody's debating this and they see it as a culture war, I actually see a move like what you pointed out as a win for capitalism, even though the capitalists are the ones that are crying about this the most, because the capitalists look at this as like, oh, it's a it's a loss at the hands of political correctness and so forth. I actually think it's a win for capitalism. And here's why. The number one objection that people make to free markets, if you've ever had a conversation with people about the power of free markets, what they will do is they will present to you some kind of scenario where there's the poor old lady who can't pay her bills. There's the person who can't get a job because everybody's a bigot. Here's somebody that's just trying to live a happy life and the free market doesn't look out for them. Therefore, we need some kind of policy that's going to add just a little bit enough of coercion to kind of make people do the right thing. And, and, And the free market advocate is always in the difficult position of trying to show that the free market system is capable of coordinating things in a much better way than central planning. And it is the best tool for resolving conflicts with people. And I think what we're witnessing is an example of the free market at work trying to sort it out. So you have a bunch of businesses that are super afraid of looking racist. This is an interesting position, right? Because make no mistake about it. These businesses are are concerned about their bottom line. That's what they care about. They care about their own self-interest, okay? This is not like some Christ-like, Buddha-like compassion that they're all of a sudden expressing. No, they care about their money. And they know that the perception of being racist is not very good for business. The perception of being anti-racist is good for business. So they're desperately bending over backwards out of fear to try to signal to black people, uh, we're not racist, please don't look at us as racist. Uh, okay, we'll listen to the argument that you made 10 years ago when we told you that you were the real racist when you guys complained about Anjumaima. We'll take it off the shelf now. Uh, what, you don't want to see the c- Confederate flag? Okay, okay, um, anything other than seeing racist. So we'll, we'll take that down. It doesn't mean that they're making the right decision, but it means that the market is doing exactly what markets do. The market is testing the limits of what the right balance is between making the customers you're afraid of losing feel comfortable doing business with you and not ticking off the customers you already had too much to where you lose them too. And the market is doing 10 times of a better job than any central planning could do. Like, Check this out as an example, and I'll shut up. Think about the Starbucks incident that happened maybe like, I think it might have been two, three years ago. 
you had these two black guys, might have been longer, I don't know. You had those two black guys who go into Starbucks and, and, and I think they were like, maybe they were waiting on each other, whatever it was, whatever it was, there was some kind of misunderstanding and the police were called, right? And th th there was an incident, a nonviolent incident where these guys complained, they were upset about it. And there was this big debate about it being, you know, was this a racist thing, whatever. There are a few predictable things that happen. First, the country did what it always does when there's a debate about race. It split right down the middle with some people saying this was about race and some people saying, no, the fact that you're making it about race is really the problem in this country. That's predictable. That's always going to happen when somebody says that racism exists. Whether it's really about race or not, that will always happen. That's totally predictable. The second thing that happened is the agents of the state did what agents of the state do. They did exactly what they're incentivized to do. They said, well, we'll do an internal investigation. And then after doing an internal investigation, they say, hey, look, they defend themselves. They say, our guys handle things in the right way. This was not our fault. There were no negative intentions at all. You know, our guys took the call and they did their job. They followed the protocol. You know, it's unfortunate that things happen this way, but we didn't do anything wrong and there was no malintent. And as an entrepreneur, I laugh to myself and I go, I wish I had the luxury of talking to my customers like that when they're unsatisfied. I wish <laughs> I had the luxury of ever staying in business by, by treating my customers like that. Starbucks does the entrepreneurial thing. Starbucks provides you with an illustration of how free markets work. And this too was predictable. Starbucks says, uh-oh, it's not like we really love them or anything, but our money is very important. You know, uh, it's not the benevolence of the butcher or the baker, right? Uh, it's our self-interest. And, and Starbucks says, uh, 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 the CEO, I got to get on top of this. Hey, we're shutting down hundreds of Starbucks locations and we're going to have little workshops about diversity and how to treat all human beings as equal. Uh, uh, black people, our coffee is for everybody. And I want to come down really hard on this and say that we're going to figure it out. We're going to get it right. And we're going to do our best to make sure that anybody who comes into Starbucks, no matter what their color is, that they feel like a dignified human being. That's how you talk to your customers when you're economically incentivized to respect them and they have the ability to go take their money to your competitor if they don't like the way you treated them. When you are an entrepreneur, you don't have the luxury of debating your customers about the existence of the problem. When your customer comes into your restaurant and say, I didn't like my food, you don't get to do like the government and say, well, you don't understand good food. I stand by my meal. Yeah, try doing that and staying in business. The government doesn't need to do that because they're going to get your money anyway. You're going to be their customer no matter what. You can't opt out of that, right? You don't have an opt-out option, you know, but entrepreneurs are different. And so what we're seeing is the free market demonstrate how hard businesses are willing to work to make you feel loved and respected, even when they don't love you and respect you because of the self-interest that they have because they're economically incentivized to do it. And if people say, yeah, but but it's a bad decision, you know, by, by taking down the Confederate flag, you're going to lose all the white people. And there aren't enough black people who care about NASCAR. My answer to that is, well, first of all, maybe you're right. I don't care if you're right or not. Maybe you're right, but the market will handle it. Unlike central planning decisions that are made, if you're correct, NASCAR is going to lose business. They're going to see that this is an unprofitable move because either it's profitable or not, 
either they can sustain it or not. And they're going to have to react to that. And they're going to have to keep tweaking it until they figure it out and get it right. And that's what businesses have always done. And I think we're witnessing in real time capitalism demonstrating its problem solving abilities. And it's actually kind of funny to me that uh, my fellow capitalists aren't seeing this as a victory at all. They're seeing it as a loss. And I would say, man, if you're in the middle of a war, you might want to at least learn how to recognize when you're scoring points. You don't have to believe that you've won, but it might help you out to realize when you've actually scored a freaking point. I don't think there's ever been like a better illustration of our ideas and how necessary they are and how they're the only ones that will work in the long term like 2020 for all of these different reasons. You know, you're talking about the responsiveness of the markets. When you look at the NBA and the NCAA walking away from millions of dollars, you know, all of this because they wanted to do the right thing for the good of their fans, their employees, their communities. And you can cynically say, oh, yeah, well, they just don't want to get sued. But nobody was thinking about lawsuits at that point. That came like a couple months later when everybody's like, well, now we need liability claims and all that. Um, it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't. You love it if the police treated you like like that. Yeah. I mean, people, people say, oh, but TK, it's not genuine love. It's just fear. Oh, that's what I want. Like, like I'll take that. Like, like, give me fear. Like, my wife gives me love. I, like, like, I don't need love from anybody else, right? Give me your fear. Give me your economically incentivized respect. I will love it. Every time a police interacts with me, they say, sir, right? They, they, they say, sir. Right. They, they treat me like, they treat me as good as my barista at Starbucks treat me. They treat me as good as my restaurant server treats me. I would love to get that kind of respect from the DMV. I would love to get that kind of customer service. I'd rather go to McDonald's if I want good customer service than the DMV. One is incentivized to work hard to make me feel love. The other, they know that I got nowhere else to go. They got my money anyway. Yeah, and, and it was two weeks, and you mentioned the lag time. It was two weeks after the NCAA that most places started shutting down in the government once the politicians realized the public will was there for that. And then then it was completely unequally applied it, it created all these unintended consequences, like when they opened, everybody thought everything was fine, you know, yeah, as opposed yeah. to persuading people that we ought to do things this way. It would have made people more empathetic, less crazy, less of yeah. the, you know, you're a sheep if you're wearing a mask. That probably wouldn't happen because there wouldn't be the, the, the coercion involved in it. So yeah, I think this is a great time politics would have been involved. That's, That's the problem. A, right, so go ahead. Yeah. Introduce politics into these things that shouldn't have politics involved in them because politics is a is a who's controlling the power. Well, it's still give the people the power to begin with, and we don't have to worry about who's controlling the power. When you talk about the free market fixing things and finding its way and pushing and pulling at the at the, the seams of everything, that's kind of how I explain society as well because society does has been doing that and plotting through that for the entirety of history. Uh, what What's possible, what's not possible, who's doing this, who's doing that. And eventually the people in something like what we're doing are going to come up to with a better solution than if somebody, a king was sitting there telling people how it's going to be. Because you may get a good king, you may get a bad king. I mean, look at, you. Look, if we go back to the example of the Bible, there was King Solomon, there was King David, right? But then there was, you know, look at, look at Herod and all the other people who were, called out in the Bible for, for being in power and completely misusing it. So you can't, 
find a better solution in the economic world as you can capitalism. I mean, I think the, the old saying is that capitalism is the worst economic system we've ever come up with, uh, except for all the others. Right. right? I mean, yeah, I would love to have a better one, but we don't have that. Just like our society is better than it's ever been. It's still not good. We still need work to do. We're mm -hmm. making that work. We're, we're moving towards that end goal, but it's not going to be a, a perfectly planned out way of getting there because that's not how it works. That's not how you get there the best way. You get there the best way by letting human interactions take care of it and self-interest and um, caring and empathy and every, all of that stuff goes into it. I mean, there are, there are businesses who are doing the right thing as it were because they really care, but then there's some that don't, it doesn't really matter at that point. We're getting there because the society wants that and they're getting rewarded for it. And, and if you have a society moving that way, that's going to be better than any central planning. Yeah. yeah, you know, can, can you imagine, imagine you're talking to someone who says, uh, hey, look, lots of black people are are really offended by the by the Confederate flag. They're really offended by Aunt Jemima. Um, we, we, we should we should pass a law forbidding any businesses from selling products that are offensive to certain groups of people. There ain't a capitalist in the world that wouldn't lose their minds. At, at the sound of that proposal, right? And, and what would the capitalists say? The capitalists would respond by saying, look, if you give that power to government, you can't take it away. And you might enjoy them having that power as long as the people who are using it are using it for the things that offend you. But what happens when there are different people in power and there's a different group that's offended and it's a product that you like and now they're taking that from the shelves. You don't wanna give that power to government to be able to make those kinds of decisions. Let the free market handle it. Let businesses decide how they want to listen to what their customers are saying, what products they do and want, don't want to sell, and then you can vote with your dollars, right? That's what they would say. And yet, that's what's happening right now. When, when a company is like, we're pulling Aunt Jemima off the shelf, that's what's happening. And, and you certainly have the right to disagree with people's businesses practices. I mean, that's always true. That's always been true. You can walk into a Friday's, open up a menu and say, I think the dessert choices are stupid. You guys aren't gonna last. Sure. Or, or the we example, can always do that. Yeah, or but. the example of QAnon has been banned from Twitter, for instance. We, you know, we, we get mad at these social media companies, but it is their business. Y yeah, well, I, I, I at least, well, at least the difference there is that I don't think Twitter is is trying to solve a problem that their customers are complaining about. I, I, I think the reason people criticize Twitter is because Twitter is actually trying to influence the political tide with their choices. Mm. I, at least that's how I see it. You know, mm. I, I don't see any customers on Twitter being like, can you, these guys on Q are ruining my Twitter experience. Most people are annoying, uh, ignoring that. that that's right. a very like fringe thing. Most people don't even take that seriously, but, but at least with, but 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 you're right. They they do have the uh, they they do and should have the right to do what they want, and that creates a market for competitors to come in. And if people want it differently, let's go with some alternative social media. You know, I, I like to use uh, a, a BSV social media site called Twitch. You know, where you don't have a lot of that censorship. You don't have any of that stuff. You get to write stuff on the blockchain. You know, I like to hang out in that space. So anyway, all I was saying about these businesses is that. They, they are now in the process of doing the very things that we normally promise 
to socialists that the free market can do. And we don't have to necessarily be happy with all the specific moves that businesses are making, but I think it would behoove us if we if we were able to recognize when we're scoring points and be able to use what's happening as an illustration of how markets can engage in the complex process of trying to resolve conflict and, and, right. and not allow our frustration with different political groups to blind us from that. And use that use that victory to show that we should free it more, right? Because I, I think a lot of people realize that there's problems with the current capitalist system because it's crony capitalism. We got too many people in there trying to manipulate it and, and manage it. But look how the truly free part of it is solving the problems. Let's open it up more to that. Let's give let's give it more ability to respond to the immediate needs. Whereas a a Congress is going to take three years, five years, ten years to hammer out a proposal and get it signed, and by then everything's changed and it's going to be a different need. You, you can never get there. I, I remember for years telling people that were were supporting giving Obama all this power to to do all these things that he was doing. I said you don't want to give him the power because soon. He's not going to be in office and somebody else is going to be in office. Most likely it's going to be somebody in a different party and you're not going to like it. Yeah. And that happened. And, and I sat there waiting for the realization of the left to come and say, oh, we yeah, we really messed up. We should never have given the presidential that position that much power. We, we should we should definitely fight against doing that in the future. They haven't learned a lesson. They're never they're not learning the lesson because they're letting they're still in pulling people by strings with fear. Yeah. Right. So they don't let people make that realization on their own. They, they prevent it because they know that's the, their downfall as soon as they do. Yeah. The other thing with the government has been doing, right. So the whole idea that you give them an inch, they take a mile. Everyone was totally for the smoking ban. When the government put the smoking ban, those same rules in the health departments that they used to enforce the smoking ban, they're doing for this whole mask ban thing. You know, yes, we're we're going to use the same system that we're and the same fine structure for the smoking ban is being used for the mask. That's how they're enforcing it. The same enforcement structure, the same fines. It's and the same powers because everyone wanted to like we got to stop smoking in bars. We couldn't let people just do this voluntarily. Oh, look at here it goes. All these people we kept telling you like, hey, you give this power to government to ban smoking. This is what they're going to do with it. Ah, oh, that'll never happen. Oh, here we are. The Another thing is with oh, you're right the the free market is easier to respond to things if the free market is nowhere perfect uh, it is you're right it's one of the better systems that we do have uh, I also believe the free market is completely separate from capitalism that's you can add capitalism to different systems but not only just beholden to the free market they're, to me they're two separate things. Um, I, I I need to hear how you define it but we can come back to that yeah okay. <laughs> The one, one good thing that like uh, the free market system has done or capitalism has done with it is the shortage of uh, hand sanitizer it allowed a lot of different businesses to pivot because the need for it. I think more would have done from it uh, if they was able to raise a lot of the prices. But now we have a gut of hand sanitizer for really, really cheap. I, for one, enjoying the whiskey-scented um, hand sanitizer out the world. I'm going to really hate it when it goes back to be like some perfumey thing like that because I enjoy the whiskey barrel smell. And then the way with masks. If they would have came out up front and just told people to wear masks, we wouldn't be in this place where people, I ain't wearing masks, I'm not doing that. I'm just like, you know what, this stuff is bad, it's horrible. Wear your dang mask. We're going to buy them up. 
I don't, yes, yes, you are. And we're going to have factories spread up and just start making tons of them because people are needed. The demand is going to be there. And so people are going to want to buy masks. And if we're able to raise the prices on, on these masks, guess what? You can't hoard them. You know, they're too expensive. Or if you want to hoard it, good, hoard them. Cool. You just bought like five machines because you wanted to have five boxes of, of masks. Now I can make five, you know, five, get five machines doing this. And with the price of masks going up, then other businesses need to pivot, you know, if, you know, because the business was, I, yeah, we came up with a way to pivot to make masks, but it was like, some of it's not profitable if masks aren't at a certain price. So we can't only do it if we can only charge this certain price for it. So. We Which shameless shameless mask. plug if you want masks provided by Harry's company, you can go to wheelerlibertarians.com and go to the store and we sell 10 packs for your homeschool family needs. <laughs> um, so TK, I, I, we really we probably have about 15 minutes left because we do try to end at two hours. I, you know I was trying to be respectful of your time, but if you said, hey, let's keep going, we were going to keep going because we've had such a great time talking to you and so many great points. Um, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about Praxis. It's something that I've seen a lo- I've seen the name a lot, but I didn't quite understand it till I you know started researching you and the show for the show here. It's a really cool concept. Can you explain what Praxis is, what you do, and what's the need for it? Yeah. Um, so we'll talk about Praxis, and then we got to make sure we talk about feet. <clears throat> yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so so Praxis. I mean the the, the word means uh, you know to embody through action, right? To embody knowledge through action. Um, and, you know, uh, back when when Isaac Morehouse first had the idea to do Praxis, to, to give a little background on his life, he grew up being unschooled by default. Um, and, you know, alternative education is something that, you know, was always something that he believed in and he saw the value of. But the problem that he saw in the marketplace was this. When you look at education at the elementary and secondary levels, the, 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 the definition of success remains the same, and that is to prep students to be ready for college. And the underlying assumption is that the thing that makes people ready for the real world is college. And so the goal of elementary and secondary is to prepare them to be able to get into a good college and then have a good college experience. And then once they get into college, You did your job. College will take care of the rest in terms of preparing them for the real world, knowing the things they need to know to be successful, whatever it may be. And we see alternatives at every level of education except the higher level. When it comes to elementary and secondary, we have private Catholic schools. We've got charter schools. We have a a robust homeschooling communities. You know, all sorts of we've got Sudbury Valley. We got all these different things. But then when it comes to higher education, it's kind of like. Everything centers around college. And people have always been very open to the idea that there's more than one way to prepare people for the real world and that education should be goal oriented, that what you call education should at least be based in a consideration of what kind of life do you want to create? What do you want to get out of life? And let's find the best educational path for you. And the only alternatives most people have for for college is do the military or, you know, go to trade school or something along those lines. Right. And um, or just not get an education at all. And so there's there's been a tremendous amount of, of pressure for people to, you know, go to college if they want to be a player in the game of life. You know, if they want to be successful, 
there's a tremendous amount of social pressure too, because if you go to college, you get a degree, and then you go out and you experience some hardships, at least you can come back and you'll get some sympathy. But if you don't go to college and you go out there and you, and you experience some hardships and you come back, you're not going to get any sympathy. People are going to say, well, see, you should have went to college. And this was a problem that he wanted to solve. He felt like if you look at the, uh, you know, the subsidized nature of college, the incentive structure is all off. You know, um, I, I, I think there is far more opportunity than what is capitalized upon for libertarians and voluntarians to criticize the subsidized nature of this institution and how it just gets the incentives all wrong and how that hurts, hurts the quality of education for our students. So if you really care about college and you really are passionate about college, you should fight for a world where colleges have to earn every dime and they have to compete in the marketplace like any other business and they have to be a freaking slave to the customer just like anybody else that wants to stay in business, right? Um, but anyway, he wanted to create an alternative that had a more efficient way to help people develop the skills that they needed to not only create wealth in the marketplace, but to become hireable and indispensable, to, to create the kind of mindset and skill set that would allow them to take charge of their careers, to not only launch it, but to take charge of it along the way. And, and so Praxis was born out of that desire. You know, you can, you can sit back and hope that you get the right person in office who will come along and change the system the way you want to see it change. Or you can just implement an entrepreneurial theory of social change and say, why don't we just build the world in the way that we want to see it? And that was his vision. And, you know, I, I've been a close friend of his for many years. So whenever either one of us would have a creative idea, we, we'd share it with each other and, and just brainstorm together. And when he shared that idea with me about Praxis, I had a lot of questions. I didn't quite get it at first, uh, but, you know, he's my friend and I kept asking questions about it. Then I decided to help him out with, it, with a few aspects of getting it off the ground. And after working with him on it for a while, I said, you know what, man, I think I think this is something special. I think the world needs this and I want to be a part of this and help you build it. And so we, you know, we started Praxis together and, and, and Praxis is an apprenticeship program and the, the structure of the program has evolved over time, but, but, but the, the abstract architecture of the program is as such the participants who go through the program, they, they go through a professional boot camp that teaches them the soft skills and the hard skills that they need to become hireable and indispensable. Uh, I define being hireable as, you know, making other people so excited about the possibility of working with you that they want to hire you because of the skills that you're able to demonstrate that you have and because of the mindset that you have. And becoming indispensable means being the kind of person who, when people work with you, they find that you create more value than you extract. You're the kind of employee who makes people cry when you leave. You're the kind of employee who's not just an employee, but you approach your work with a sense of agency and, and, and with a sense of artistry. And so the boot camp teaches that. And, and the boot camp does this in a way that isn't, isn't reducible to having people listen to motivational speeches or read self-help books or watch YouTube lectures on creativity. It is project-based because it, you know we don't believe that you can separate the learning process from the creative process. You need to actually be able to produce results. You need to be able to actually create value and solve problems. And so there's a lot of content consumption, but there's also a lot of creation. 
and, and it's focused around and informed by what it takes to succeed in the professional world. There's a network of, of startups that, that work with Praxis, and we get informed by leadership about the kinds of things that these students need to learn, that participants need to learn um, in order to be hireable and indispensable. So it's not just based on like, oh, here's my idea about something cool to teach them. It's like, no, what do you need them to know and do in order to be excited about working with them, in order to want to give them promotions, in order to want them to grow with the company? And then those are the things that are actually being taught. What, what are um, some of those things? Because, you know, it sounds like you're, you're, you're offering opportunities for marketable skills, not, you know, lesbian to alien feminist poetry that's my dream and that's what i want to do so you give them an apprenticeship you're like what is the marketplace wanting and then let's connect them i mean what are some of those skills that are in demand that you're working on yeah so you know th there are a lot of things i, I mean you know technological literacy l learning learning how to use the tools that a that a company uses in order to manage information in order to communicate with the people on the team, in order to track work, in order to document the things that you're doing, in order to know how to properly report things to the proper members of your team. Things like knowing how to effectively deal with customers, how to resolve conflict, um, a, a variety of things like that. And I, I, I would say that the biggest thing that that is missing by a lot of people when it comes to succeeding in, in these spaces is approaching things with agency. You know, being able to walk into, you know, let's say an entry level position and, and carry yourself with the sense of responsibility of someone who owns the place, you know? And, and, and I can talk about mindset in that way. I'll give you an example. There's a, uh, there's a practice, practice participant named Emily who uh, she sees an alumni now. And it, it, it was really cool how, you know, she went to, uh, she wanted a, a job at a particular place and they told her, you know, that they weren't hiring and she really wanted to work at that place, right? And so she says, I'll tell you what, I'll work for you for free for a month. And I promise you that I'll create more value for your company. And here are the different things that I want to do. If at the end of that month, you feel like, it really hasn't been worth your time. You can let me go and I'll be on my merry way. However, if you feel like my work is valuable, you pay me what you think is valuable. That person said, I want to hire you right now because I need somebody with your attitude. Mm. Right Now, it doesn't even matter that she got that job. Even if she didn't get that job, it's the principle. It's the mindset, right? You know that a person with that mindset is eventually going to make it if they consistently practice that. The problem, however, is I can tell you that story and that's great, but that's way too intangible. You know, uh, that's way too intangible. And no one can just like, it's not very easy for people to see your mindset, right? You, you need a way to concretize that. And the way that you do that is through projects that demonstrate your ability to stick with something, that demonstrate your ability to complete a task and to do it in a focused way. You know, so what a lot of our participants do is they will take projects that are recommended by these companies and they'll actually complete them and build up their portfolio so that when they describe themselves as having these skills and having these attitudes, they can say, watch me signal it. And they can point you to a concrete project where they actually demonstrate those abilities. And so those are the things that we teach, not only how to cultivate the right mindset, but how to funnel that into something that isn't so abstract 
so that people can see what that mindset is like in action. Because everybody says they're creative. Everybody says they're a fast learner. Show me what that looks like. We show our participants how to show people what that looks like through what they actually do. And at the end of that boot camp, they get an actual job. They, they, they get a real full-time position in a company that offers opportunities for growth. And, and, and we focus we focus on less bureaucratic companies where, you know, you, you're kind of, you know, just sort of put in the space to kind of stay out of the way or just do this or that. But, but, but dynamic growing startups where you have an uncommon opportunity to grow with the company, where they're really interested in investing in you and having you grow with them. And, and they learn in the real world by actually doing the job. Because at the end of the day, um, if the risk involved in the learning process aren't real, the rewards won't be real either. Incentives matter. And so we we structure education in a way that gets the incentives right by shifting the learning from being classroom oriented to being market oriented, where you're actually working with real customers who, when they get mad at you, are for real. They're not fake mad. <laughs> so how does Fee fit into this? And tell us what Fee is, for those who don't know. It's a great organization, great uh, great website. I visit it every day. But how do they? what role do they play in this? Yeah, oldest, uh, oldest uh, think tank, free market think tank in the country. Fee is 75 years old, Foundation for Economic Education. So when I first co-founded Praxis about six years ago, I was giving a talk about entrepreneurship at, I believe it was Penn. There, there was like a some conference there and there was someone from Fee there who was in that in the auditorium at that time and said, hey, I would I would love for you to come give a talk about that topic to the students at one of our workshops. I hadn't heard of Fee at that time. And, and he told me about the workshops and everything. And I said, sure, that's cool. And I went to the workshop. And I absolutely loved it. It was at Chapman University in Orange County. And um, I, I talked with the students about different aspects of entrepreneurship and economics and so forth. And it was so fun working with those students. And so every year from that point on, um, I would do different talks or lectures with Fee. I, I was an adjunct faculty member um, for, for the entire time. And then about a year and a half ago, I went to Larry Reed and I said, you know, Larry... I love working with Fee and I really love being in this context where I'm talking to excited college students, high school students about how economics and entrepreneurship can transform their lives. But there's one thing that bothers me. When I look into these audiences, I hardly see any black people. And I want to change that. I want to change that. Um, for whatever reason, we're not successfully connecting with an audience that I deeply care about that I think would benefit from hearing what we're offering, but I also think we would benefit from hearing what they're offering, you know? And, um, you know, I, you know, one of my mantras is black dreams keep me awake at night. I have a special place in my heart for seeing young black Americans believe in their potential, recognize and embrace their possibilities and achieve economic self-sufficiency and self-empowerment. Uh, th th there's nothing I care about more than that in terms of my personal legacy. And I, I believe that that Fee has the team and, and the spirit and, and the history to be able to make that happen, you know, and uh, and I stepped on as, as a director, director of entrepreneurial education to work towards that end. And so my my project is called the revolution of one. 
It is. It consists of a podcast and other media content. Like I do three live streams a week. I have a podcast that I do, a video podcast and studio, um, you know, blog posts, and also customized workshops um, for different schools, churches, and other communities. And it's aimed at reaching a broader audience with a lot of the ideas around economics and entrepreneurships that, that we've even talked about, but also aimed at helping young Black Americans embrace these ideas so that they can be able to use them to become the predominant creative force in their own lives. Because I, I, I've i said it once and I say it many times, I believe the entrepreneurial spirit is alive and well in Black communities. But um, I, I don't think the way forward for Black Americans is to convince um is to convince white people that our experiences are what we say they are. I think the only way we move forward, like it or not, is for us to work together to rebuild our own communities and to do whatever we got to do to, uh, to, to, to educate our own people and, um, and, and to be willing to work with anyone, regardless of their, their race, religion, or creed, to be willing to work with anyone who is willing to get alongside us and actually do the work. You know, the people that are that are using us and our problems to make political talking points to their political opponents, they can, you know, they can fall by the wayside. But the people that are willing to get alongside us and actually do the work. And so um, I'm going into these communities, into these schools, into these churches and uh, building networks and and building lives. Um, what, what, you know, one of the things I, you know, I like to say is that I'm not in the business of merely trying to create a world. Uh, create a create a society rather in which everyone feels free. I'm trying to cultivate individuals who can figure out how to live freely in any kind of society, and uh, and and that's that's what the work is that I'm doing with Revolution of One. So you can check me out at fee.org/rev1, f-e-e.org/rev1. Um, if you want to support what I'm doing or just follow along what I'm doing, all my social media stuff, YouTube stuff, all of that, you can find it in that single link. Cool. And I will make sure that's in the show notes. So all, all you have to do is just check the description of this. It's very easy. And I'm sure that uh, many of our, our people who have listened will want to follow the work that you're doing. And if we can be in, uh, of help in any way in your efforts, then we are, are at your service and, and ready to help. And just let us know what you need. And if we can come back, if you'd like to come back, I'd love to, I'd love to talk more about the you know, I just picked up this Cato book called The Inclusive Economy, and basically, you know, here's here's a, a way forward, and that that's an idea because, you know, when as we talk about um, one of the things I, I host the public affairs show on a local radio station, and it's as I talk to local nonprofits, what I find is that a lot of the work is connecting people who are of privilege with people who have very like. One organization just helps people fill out college applications. And it's not like a, a race-based thing. It's an economic-based in, income thing. Because most people have no clue how to go to college. You know, and so they, they recognized here in Indianapolis that people in lower socioeconomic ladders have no idea how to fill out college applications. And so that, like, oh, that seems easy, you know. But that one step just has such a profound effect on our community, on those lives and things like that. So I'm always looking for, you know, how can we, you know, how can we at wall 
you know, make people aware of whatever opportunities that there may be for, for, I, I just, we have the ability to, to share some of what we have, you know what I mean? Like, I think I was raised in a very privileged uh, place, you know, with a good income. And I look at it and I go, I talk to people who didn't grow up the way I grew up and how can I help them? And so a lot of our audience is ready and and willing. So what are, are there some ways that people can get involved in your work? Is there, you know, you know, fundraising or inviting you to come to speak uh, how, how can people do that? All, all of the above, all of the above, you know? It, 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 yeah. So, so one, if, if you want to support the work I'm doing, you know, one level at which you can do that doesn't cost you any money, share my stuff, promote my stuff, right. You know, like share a video on social media, um, you know, retweet my stuff, you know, tell a friend about me, send people to my website. The more people who know, about, you know, the work that I'm trying to do, the more you put me at an advantage in try- in terms of making the connections that I'm trying to make or exposing people to the things I want them to see. As an example, you take my podcast. Um, I-, I bring a lot of black entrepreneurs on my podcast because we're out there, man. You know, ju- just because the spotlight isn't interested in us, you know, doesn't mean that, that we're not there. You know, I-, I tell people all the time, never confuse the spotlight with, with the light that is shining in black communities all over the world. There are hardworking entrepreneurs and small business owners and activists in all these black communities. And, and we will never be as interesting as other more sensational stuff. We may, may not make the headlines. You know, people always want to make the rhetorical point like, well, what about Chicago? Where's all the anger about Chicago? Don't, don't ask questions about a place that you've never been. Don't, don't ask questions unless you've spent five minutes actually trying to find the answer because I'm from Chicago and and there are a lot of hardworking people in Chicago who are trying really hard to solve problems there, black folks. But just because CNN ain't interested in that doesn't mean it isn't real. So don't get it twisted. So I'm trying to expose my audience to these, you know, to these kinds of people. And, I, and, and I'm trying to help promote more mentorship, you know, because the thing that's going to help black folks is seeing other black folks succeed. I was just talking with Stephen Hart on my show, who's the host of Trailblazers FM podcast. And we were talking about why black success stories matter. I know somebody just got triggered right there just by the similarity that that phrase has with another phrase that ends with matter. But why black success stories matter and how important it is to shine a spotlight on entrepreneurs and artists that have gone out and done amazing things who are black so that folks can look at that and say, hey, Maybe that's possible for me too. So just just share my work, follow my work, subscribe to my work. If you want to support in terms of uh, in terms of donating, yes, that helps tremendously. That allows me to expand my team. That allows me to get out there and do more things. And um, you, you you can contact us, you know, via the feed.org website. You can contact us there. Um, we'd be happy to talk with you about that and figure out what works best for you. And yeah, I think those would be those would be my two things I would say off the bat if you're trying to support me and what I'm doing. Excellent. All right. Well, we've reached the end. So at the end, we do shameless self-promotion and uh, free time to kind of anything that you might have missed that you wanted to say. Uh, so I'm going to let the two veterans go and show you how it's done. So final thoughts for the episode, Reinhold. Yeah. 
So loved everything. I'm, I'm glad, glad we had you on. It was awesome to have you here. Um, when you mentioned the mentoring thing, that was, that was something that's always kind of keyed on me. I always felt that if we had more mentoring going on in this in this country, where we were actually going out and teaching people and showing people, if if one if every person would just mentor one other person, you know, what kind of influence and difference would that make in our society? So the work you're doing is amazing where we're, where you're trying to affect change by going out and just doing it um, is, is very inspiring to me. So uh, keep it up and I'll definitely be doing what I can to help you out. Harry. Harry. How many times we have a guest. We're trying to look professional. You're embarrassing the family. We don't do this once per episode. Is it really an episode? No, we're the least professional, most professional signing podcast you'd ever see. So, <laughs> welcome, to, welcome to the welcome to the show. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Harry. It's a podcast hospital. Anyway, <laughs> um, the I am happy to excited to see the work that Praxis has done. I remember reading about it like in its infancy because I found it very interesting because actually it's a how a lot of like of my uh, friends that they learn better just by being mentored and actually just doing work. That was uh, a lot of the the program, the internship program that I went through in high school was more of a what am I doing? You know, it was like, all right, we're not going to just sit through you in the room. You're actually going to build a network. Uh, uh, you're going to have to make sure this network correct, uh, works and you have to maintain it. Go ahead. And we're just freshmen in high school. We're like, all right, fine. You're going to give us all this expensive Cisco equipment for this company. Sure. We'll do this. This will be fun. You know, and it's, and it's, and it has helped because a lot of the skills that I go through. And even when I went to college, a lot of the, which I thought was just basic knowledge and networking and stuff that I've done that most people like never touched it, never even seen it, and they basically just got it just from a book. And this is how they learn. And college is supposed to teach it. I'm just like, yeah, this is boring. Now the college is boring for me. Um, so I'm excited to hear that Praxis is moving on, and I would love to have you back on to talk more about Praxis, especially even now that all these people are have their high school kids at home and they're actually seeing their kids. And I'm like, come on, you're, you, if you've been stuck at home for this long. You could probably get out of high school if you've been sitting at home for the last four or six months. Yeah. How long hard it is to get your GED and get, get your out, especially if you're a junior or sophomore. Do the test. You know, or what did you really learn and what are you really doing? You know, SAX, they have to see their kids and actually be productive. It's it's like, you know, you know, what did the school system really prepare you for? And with the new world that possibly may be coming, because simple fact that people are wanting to bring more manufacturing and more skill-based stuff back here that yeah. World's going to be a different place. They're going to need people like that gone through the practice uh, system and you know unschoolers. Uh, the my last other topic I'm going to bring up is uh, the one thing that I, I thought completely off topic. Off topic. I'm going to come over here to left field and grab something and bring it over here. Is uh, I want to talk about Machin uh, Nawaz. He, he was doing his hunger strike this week to bring attention about the Chinese Uyghur movement. If you not have, if you have not watched the drone footage of what is happening to the Uyghur Muslims in China, that after this podcast, please go watch that drone footage and watch the shocking atrocities that are happening over in China right now. A lot of people like to point it at Trump and said, you know, this is what you would be doing during Nazi Germany. Well, no, stop that. This is what you would be doing. This is the, 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 the China is right now is literally being the Nazi party of putting people on trains and pushing people off, be, you know, so, yeah. 
that's my that's my rant. Well, final thoughts from Harry's mom. Our show needs to be a homework assignment for high school children. And then also keep your gun license. That's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> so were there comments coming in all throughout this thing? Oh yeah, yeah. We, you know, followed Larry Brown. Uh, yeah, we've got somebody was promoting. Uh, you know, we were out there promoting you too. So yeah, it's this. I, I don't know if you've ever used uh, Streamyard, but this is an absolutely great. Uh, uh, you know, money. Great point. There is one. This gentleman had a lot of great points, mm-hmm, but I'm going to mm-hmm. let you read his username, but I'm not going to say it out loud. <laughs> All right, let, let me read it. What I mean by that is the guy. Hold on. Wait, was there something? Oh, 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 he, just no, it's just his username was a little offensive, but, uh, you know, he's. I want to read the comment. Though. Oh, hold on. Let me see. He had one really good one that. Uh, uh, I know his comment's really good, but it's like. Can't, How do I break can't, can't pop that up there because he, you know, he's using the C word. All right, so I got it. Seville. What I mean <laughs> by that is the guy didn't have to bake the cake. It was his choice. Some people just won't shop there and he lose business. We don't need the government to force things. Bake the cake. Yeah. I got you. Bake I got the you. Damn cake. So, yeah, we got all, we got a lot of comments. So, um, oh man, I, I, I wish I it'd be curious. I'd be curious to see. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Jackie says, great show. Yeah. So there's all kinds of comments. uh, If you want to go back and read on, on the various platforms that we're broadcasting to, but we've come to the point where a one more time, tell people where they can follow you, but give us your final thoughts. Sum all this up. Yeah. Follow me at fee.org slash rev one. That's a website that gives you all my social media. You want to follow me directly. You can go on Twitter at TK underscore Coleman. Go to Instagram, at official TK Coleman. But you can find all that stuff if you just go to the page, feed.org slash rev1. Final thoughts. There are two fundamentally different ways that you can approach changing the world. The way of conversion and the way of subversion. The way of conversion is you treat the problem with the world as if there are just too many people who believe the wrong things. And what we have to do is we've got to argue those people into the right way of seeing things. And if we can just argue enough people into the right way of seeing things, then we'll win because they'll do the right things, like maybe vote for the right people or whatever it may be. This is why every election, people are really upset because they feel the pain. At least half the country feels the pain of the way of conversion failing them yet again. This is why we get upset when we try to argue with our friends about our political ideologies and they don't see it. And maybe they just accuse you of hating the poor or whatever it may be. We get upset because the way of conversion has failed us. But there is another way. The way of conversion has its place, but it's not the only way. There are people who have seen the light because of the way of conversion, but it is not the only way. There is the way of subversion. The way of subversion is when you gradually undermine the the dominant incentive structure by innovating around systems of oppression in such a way that you influence people's behavior to live freely, even though they haven't consciously bought in to the freedom idea. I am not here to try to just change the way people see the world. I want to change the world that people see. 
And when you look at how societies change, there are a lot of powerful forms of change that happen in the world without requiring the permission of anybody to submit to your philosophical arguments. You know, it's funny. I think about when when Facebook or Twitter first came out, people were like, that's stupid. Sounds dumb. I don't get it. Try to argue family and friends into it. Sounds dumb. I don't get it. Sounds stupid. When I think about Uber and first brought it up to people, I don't really get it. Sounds stupid. Just sounds like a taxi ride, but a serial killer could take me for a ride and nobody know where I'm at. Now, everybody's on Facebook. Everybody's using Twitter. Everybody's using Uber. Is it because we had a mass conversion experience where everyone finally saw the philosophical light? No, that's not why it happened. It happened because innovators and entrepreneurs and pragmatists worked day in and day out to create a product, to create a service, to create a tool that was so useful to people that in spite of their beliefs, they started to use it anyway and the network effects began to take off. I think many of us who love the idea of freedom, we limit ourselves and we put ourselves in positions to always be discouraged because we limit our power to changing the way people see the world and we overlook the power that we have to change the world that people see. And this is what the entrepreneur brings to the discussion. No matter what the system is, no matter how oppressive it is, there will always be an element of human creativity. And if we can place faith in that element, we can trust in that element, we can we can commit ourselves to that element in season and out of season, we can move the needle in the direction of freedom. Some people accuse me of being an optimist for believing that. I'm not an optimist. I'm a pessimist about the right things. I can't place faith in what a lot of people out there place faith in. I just can't bring myself to a position where I can have such an optimistic faith that all we got to do is get the right person in office and everything is going to be okay. I I just will never have enough faith for that. I'm just not that optimistic. I side with Milton Friedman here. The solution is not to get a good person to run the system. The solution is to create a system that incentivizes even the bad person to do the right thing. I don't want a world of good individuals. I don't have faith that I'm going to create that kind of world. I want a world with good incentives. And that's something that we can all contribute to creating, even if we feel like we're losing arguments with people who are too stubborn. That's it. All right, TK, TK Coleman, thank you so much for joining us. We have uh, greatly enjoyed this. The audience has been writing in saying how much they've enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, we really appreciate your time and we definitely want to have you back again. And we, uh, we just can't thank you enough. I mean, I think you have given words to the way that a lot of people feel, and that's incredibly valuable. And uh, we thank you for it. I appreciate you all having me on the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us here on We Are Libertarians. We will talk to you again next week.